the the munchies pie or the Super Bowl pie? Maybe a munchies it's pie. It's like a magic bar, but like, like with sounds like with M and M's and pretzels and it all that. It didn't have M and M's. It didn't have an M and M's. The salty monkey pie with Maybe. the pretzels on I don't top. Know, I love these names. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to a new episode of Banco Podcast. I am Nick Jimenez, and I am joined by alleged chef, eighth grade basketball MVP, and Averett University's most renowned ascot designer, Yep, Michael Beltran. And the crowd goes wild. We are joined today by our guest. You want to tell the people and do the segue into this thing? The man commonly known as Fireman Derek himself, Derek Kaplan. And we like put in that we put in the Thank you, thank you. Yeah. Long time listener, first time caller. Oh yeah? Yeah. No, I don't believe that at all. Not for a second. <laughs> I don't believe that for a second. He walked in and said, What's the name of this thing again? I don't know. But before <laughs> we get into our conversation with Derek Kaplan of Fireman Derek's Bakery, here is a sponsored segment from people who gave us money. Drew Estate Cigars. This was a uh, conversation that we recorded between uh, Mike and Drew Estate Master Blender Willie Herrera, who was our last guest. But this is specifically, narrowly, about the Herrera Esteli Miami, uh, which is one of the many cigars in their portfolio. So on the other side of this conversation, you'll hear Mike and Derek talk about God knows what. When that cigar came out, the Herrera Esteli, the red, obviously because that was the first one that came out, I... um, I tried it one time. I I loved it. Actually, someone recommended it to me, and then I was like, you know, let me give it another try to make sure like it was that good the first time, and it's gonna be that good the second time. And I fucking loved it as much the second time as I did the first time. So in that whole process, uh, we were actually uh, curating like a cigar list for our restaurant, and we have a good amount of people that smoke. Not like it's not we don't have like. 30 smokers a day, but you know, every once in a while people will um, come in, they'll buy a couple sticks, they'll smoke one on the back patio or whatever, and that was the, actually the first box that disappeared that I had to rebuy. Wow, nice. Yeah, so, um, you know, that was your first cigar under this brand, right? Yeah, well, that was my first cigars when I joined the company. So, right. I joined Drew Estate in 2010. Uh, up to that point, I was in my family's factory in Little Havana at Titan de Bronce. Yeah. And, you know, I was doing my thing there, creating our brands, doing a lot of private labels, a lot of brands for stores, a lot of brands for the companies, whether they were new companies or, or existing companies that wanted to, to create or have in their portfolio, you know, a Miami boutique made product. So, you know, I had been there since... I don't know, late nineties, early two thousands. And, you know, I went through that whole boom of that, you know, that craze of, you know, boutique cigars and, you know, all these little factories in Miami and little Havana. And, you know, I went through all that. And so that kind of, you know, gave me a lot of ideas and, you know, I was loving a lot of those cigars that were coming out at that time. It was just something so different from what was in the marketplace up to that point, you know, that, that spice and that richness and just a very different type of cigar, you know, something that people weren't used to. And then in 2010, I joined the company. I joined Drew Estate. I left the family's factory 
and uh, you know, with the with the concept of bringing in that Cuban influence into Jewish state and kind of expand their, their traditional uh, side of cigars for Jewish state. And then, yeah, the Herrera Habano, that was the very first cigar, that was the first line that I did when I joined the company. I, um, like I was saying before, I, I smoked that cigar once a week. And I usually, you know, I'll, I'll drift from like one to another and then I'll go back to one. But that one, if I'm ever in a, uh, a time that I'm actually like in a shop and I'm sitting there and I'm going to do work from there, I start with that one and then I'll drift to another one. And sometimes I'll just smoke two of those, you know. Nice. Yeah, it's what size do you like in the line? Uh, what do you? What's your go-to size? I, I don't remember. I think you you've tended to when you can find the Lonsdale. Oh, you'll do right. There's a Lonsdale in that store. Yeah, that's my go-to, man. Lonsdale. That's where it's at. That's where that I mean, blend really shines. It's the it's the perfect like for me that perfect midday smoke. But it also could be bold enough that you can smoke it after dinner. And it's like it it's just so versatile, you know which. I think that uh, a lot of times when you find a cigar, a lot of them are situational cigars. So, like, you know, this is good only for after dinner. This is good when I'm drinking X thing. I mean, that cigar really, it's just so broad. You could smoke it in the afternoon. You could smoke it at nighttime. You could smoke it on a boat. You could smoke it after dinner. It doesn't matter. It's like, it's a very Miami cigar. I'll tell you that much. You, you know what's funny, man? That's exact. So, one of the, the top questions I get all the time with a lot of, you know, these uh, interviews or, you know, now everybody's doing virtual events and stuff. So the number one question, what's your favorite cigar? I'm like, dude, I don't have a favorite cigar because they're all, they all got their, their specific times or whatnot, right? What you ate, what you're doing, who you're with, where you're at, how's the weather. Uh, but my go-to and the one that's all the time, at least three of them a day is that Habano and specifically that Lonsdale size. And it's for that exact same reason you just said. It's versatile. You can have it in the morning as a first cigar with your cup of coffee. You can have it in the middle of the day when it's hot. Or you could have it at night after a heavy meal. It's right. going to give you the flavor. It's going to give you the body. It's going to give you the complexity, you know, without it being overpowering with strength. And uh, it's funny you mentioned that, man, because that's exactly how I feel about that cigar, man. That's my go-to. Yeah, for sure. And I think that size specifically, too, because it's not like I mentioned like a midday smoke because – you know, it's not going to take you hours to get through, you know, and it doesn't matter the weather either. Like it could be cold, it could be hot outside. It doesn't really matter. So can you um, tell me about the transition to the Miami edition? So the Miami edition, Rich, so I'll go back to the beginning. So I came out with the Harris to Habano, which is the first line, the white with the red band. And then I did my first limited release. Every year I wanted to do a limited release for whatever line came out. And so the very first limited I did was the uh, Alancero out of that same blend of the Habano. Then the following year I came out with the Norteño line. Ooh, love those. The, the limited that I did for that line was a Churchill, was a modified blend of that Norteño blend in a Churchill size. So then the third year I went back to the Habano and I wanted to do something totally different. So I spoke to the team and I said, look, I would like to take it back to the roots. I would like to take it back to where it all started for me. So what I did was in, rather than just come up with another different size within uh, a line, you know, same tobacco, same blend, I did a totally different blend. And I did it in my factory in Miami, 
where it all started for me. So I created that blend. Uh, it was a Corona size. It was a limited release. I think it was 1,500 boxes or 2,500 boxes uh, of that one Corona size. And it did great. And then right after that, we decided to kind of streamline all the packaging uh, of Herrera Stelly. Uh I had a new line at that point. And, but everything was all over the place, you know, depending on the line, some were 10 count, then you had bundles, you had 50 count. It was just all over the place that it was very confusing. Uh, the boxes were very different from each other from line to line. So a lot of times, you know, I would be at a store and I talked to someone about, say, the Norteño, and they had no clue that was even a Drew Estate product or within the Herrera family. So we repackaged everything, kind of streamlined everything, same style packaging. And at that point, the line had done so well, or the, the cigar had done so well that we decided to make a whole line out of it. And we added all the additional four sizes. So you have all five across all the brands. Now, at this point, it's the Habano, the uh, Norteño, the Brazil, and the Miami. And they're all still made in Miami. So they're all unique to Miami. Um, you, blended with the tobaccos that we use in our factory here in, uh, in Little Havana, you know? Do you think that it's, like, more intriguing for the uh, clientele outside of Miami, the fact that it's, like, a Miami edition? Well, you know, the deal with Miami cigars in general that are made in Miami is, you know, it's there's a certain romance of a, a tiny little factory in Miami this boutique little factory where they're not mass producing, you know, thousands and thousands of cigars a day. And, you know, people want to experience that. And, you know, the fact that you're in Miami, you don't have to, you know, fly to Central America, fly to the Dominican Republic uh, or wherever else there's factories. You know, a lot of people have layovers in Miami. You know, a lot of people stop here to go on cruise ships. Uh, a lot of people stop here on overnight flights to fly out somewhere else. A lot of people fly in to go down to the Keys. So we get a lot of those people stopping by to visit. Oh, man, this is a real factory. Look at the rollers. Look at the tobacco. Look how cigars are made. So it's got that certain romance, man, that, you know, you can't get unless you, you know, you get some kind of tour in one of these bigger factories outside of, 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 of Miami. Yeah, you know, I, I grew up down the street from uh... – factory i grew up on 23rd and 18th so right down the street and my actually my grandparents still live there i mean they've been there for like 45 years pretty wild wow yeah that neighborhood for me is is very special we've gone through you name it man is it we've gone through it dude you know i remember back in the day uh during the festival in Cayocha, i'd be there in the shop and you know it was just it was just different times man and we're back I hope everyone goes to buy lots and lots of cigars. Please do that. We need the metric to to be very good. Speaking of which, thanks to Derek for these other cigars. We're saving yeah. uh, some Davidoffs that Derek brought. This is tremendous. I know. This is like such a day. This is Derek's smoking a Davidoff, having a martini. I don't even know where the fuck I am right now. This is I, amazing. I feel like we've made it. Yeah, I know. I know. This is intense. Derek, what's up, man? Just riding the wave of what's going on in the world. Yeah. One day at a time. It's it's been quite a fucking wave. So before we get into all the things and the, the talking shit that we do, I think you have a pretty amazing story. So for our listeners in Salina that aren't familiar with Miami, let's give a, li- uh, a little bit of context of how Fireman Derek's pies sure 
came about and how you kind of um, got to where you are now, which is incredibly well-known, serving incredibly delicious things. Thanks, buddy. Um, so, well, thank you very much for the compliment. And, um, I mean, I always love to cook. You know, Growing up, I started cooking for myself around like 14 or 15. And after a while, I was like, all right, well, I need to start making dessert. And naturally, key lime pie was not only one of my favorites, but I think it was already designated at the sta- as the state pie by then. Mm-hmm. And I started with key lime pie, just doing it in high school in the kitchen. And, I mean, doing high school things like... You know, getting stoned with your friends. You got the munchies. You make some pies. Wow. Um, I wish you were my friend in high school. Yeah. Fuck. You know. Jeez. We're um, eating cereal and fucking yeah. nothing delicious like that. So, um, and I just started with key lime pie and kind of ran ran from there. I, uh, you know, back then I was just doing it for fun. So it wasn't like I knew all the business side of things. Um, so I, I felt like, all right, I want to be a firefighter. Because I felt, you know, service to the community was important, and I liked a physical job, and I didn't want to sit behind a desk and all that stuff. So I became a fireman, and I, in the process, I mean, I was still learning, you know, still learning new flavors of pie, how to make pie crusts, how to bake cakes, cheesecakes, all that stuff. And eventually, you know, enough guys, you know, enough people that I knew personally and enough uh, firefighters that I knew all were like, man, you know, these are everything's really good. So it was easy to start selling it. And I went around town from restaurant to restaurant buying, um, or not buying, but selling the pies. And believe it or not, the first restaurant that I ever sold to was uh, Michelle Bernstein's place, uh, Michi's, when it was on uh, uh, Biscayne and like, I don't know, 73rd or something like that. Amazing. So she was like my first buyer uh, of the product. I sold to her for about a month. And then I think her pastry chef had a fit that she was buying stuff from somebody outside off the street. I believe it. And that kind of just gave me the confidence to continue on doing it and continue to, you know, sell and grow. And I'd go to all the farmer's markets back then. I would do events at Fairchild, events at malls. I mean, you name it. You know, all the food events that that I'm sure you're familiar with over the years that have Mm -hmm. taken place. And eventually I got a uh, food truck, and I did that for a few years. Um, And that kind of just really gave me the the confidence to continue to open up, you know, to want to open up a brick and mortar. Like, people already knew about the product. What years was that, the food truck? The food trucks, I guess, I think started, like, 2010, 2009. It was, like, the peak food truck time, right? Or Um, right before it, maybe? So... The peak was the first year, and then after the first year, it kind of turned into a rodeo. You know, oh, yeah. where you had to go to all the rodeo, the food truck rodeos to eat from food trucks. So the first year was crazy. Like, yeah, the lines would be an hour, two hours long for some of these food trucks, especially when you do some of the bigger events that, uh, you know, some of the more well-known guys around town were throwing. But I got my food truck like a year after they, they, they went nuts, and... I kind of e- you know, eased into it. It wasn't like, holy shit, I have a food truck, right. and now I got a three-hour-long line. Like, where do I produce all this product? Um, and I just kept at it, man. I kept going to all the different events around town. Uh, I kept learning. I kept baking new stuff, new flavors, cakes, cheesecakes, cookies, brownies. I mean, I make you know, savory stuff, too. Um, yeah, pot pie. 
yeah, the pot pie. I, I have fucked plenty of those up. Yeah, yeah, man, those things are, those things are good, man. Yeah, really they're good. fucking delicious. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm making ice cream now. I graduated from Penn State's ice cream school. Amazing. So yeah, I went up there and took their course, um, and just just kept at it. You know, just kept working at it, man. Like I put in hundred hour work weeks, um, and that's. If you want it, I mean, that's how you gotta. That, that's how it comes about. That's especially, right. especially in the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, you gotta put in the time. And um, so, yeah, now there's two stores. I have a production kitchen up in uh, in Little Haiti area off 62nd Street, and you know, I'm working on a couple more stores and nationwide shipping and uh, Uber. Um, we're working with a distributor, Chef's Warehouse, so they're distributing the product for us. They distribute, cool. up, yeah, they distribute up to Tampa. Is, is now where they're taking it to so you know keep creeping up the state um yeah it's kind of in a nutshell what What, it is in that time like what do you think was the like the big difference maker was there something that happened along that journey that it was like well this happened all right um and then now all of a sudden more and more people came and uh more and more recognition happened etc i mean it's a lot of it has to do with consistency yeah you know getting your butt up every day and putting in the hours putting in the time you know you have to you have to know how to produce it on a large scale you know on a mass quantity scale you have to figure out that out which you have which is yeah i think you have to be good at math in order to do that oh yeah yeah like i feel like mathematics is like uh, simple mathematics is very not common no no and it and and you're not – I don't think you can scale or you're going to understand how to scale if you don't understand some simple mathematics, which – Correct. You know. It's not so simple for many. Uh, as much as that pain – you know, it, it pains me to say it. You know, it should yeah. be something that a lot of people get. But, but they don't. Yeah, I hear you. But, uh, yeah, man, you put in the hours. You put in the time. I mean, listen, it's like anything. You want it. You want it. You got to work hard for it. Yeah. Um and and people ask like what's the secret like is it a, you know the, oh there's no there's no real secrets to any of the recipes the the secret is is that uh i make it the same way after the millionth one it still tastes the same like the first one right you know and people come back for that that's why you see places like chipotle mcdonald's starbucks you know all those companies that have become big huge conglomerate companies serving the quantities of food that they're serving and to the amounts of people yeah i mean consistency is key that's what makes or breaks your business all day you know consistency service hospitality at least in our thing it's like you know they they want that same thing to happen every single time yeah and it's and it makes complete sense that they want it to happen that way every single time so when they come back the next time it's the same exact way exactly and it's um I've learned a lot in my five years here, um, and one of them was like, you know, we have to make the thing as consistent as possible to keep that guest for a long time. 100%. And I think that's, you know, consistency and efficiency for me kind of go hand in hand because the more efficient you are, the more consistent you are. So it's uh, it's always like, and now that before beforehand when we first started, I didn't have the ability to build kitchens because my kitchen was just already there. Sure. Uh, so now that I have the ability to build them, every time I'm making some kind of decision, I always ask myself, is this the most efficient, consistent way to, to put out food? Of course. And it's 
It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, you, if you're very smart with the way you do things and the way you build things out, you could be incredibly consistent over and over and over again. But you got to do it from months before you've even opened. Yeah. Well, and you got to keep things simple. That's a, that's another concept that people don't understand. Like for instance, you could take, you get a good quality pan, get a nice quality cut of meat. Yeah. Know how to sear it, salt and pepper, and, and there's. A thousand people that are going to tell you that was the best steak they ever had. And you're doing something very simple. Right, right. But people appreciate that it's high quality. It tastes exactly how they remember it. Right. You know, like you're not doing anything fancy. There's no secret recipe. Like you bought yourself an, you bought yourself a quality pan, a quality piece of meat, some good salt, you know, some quality pepper. And you know how to sear things properly. And well, I mean, and, and I think a lot goes into like actual technique you know like of course and you need to know how to really cook to actually use like proper technique so cooking over a live fire you know searing properly seasoning properly For sure. all those things are uh fundamental cooking skills that a lot of people skip well in my opinion those are the basic kind of equations the basic math or you know the mathematic equations of building a solid foundation mm-hmm. you know and For uh sure. So, um, you know, you asked how I got here. Uh, I mean, you know, and that's kind of it, man. Just using, you know, keeping things simple. The most, the most popular flavors of ice cream in the United States, sales-wise, every year are vanilla and chocolate. Yes. They make every flavor you could possibly imagine. And people, most people buy vanilla and chocolate What ice do you cream. buy? Ice cream-wise? Yeah. Cookie dough is my favorite. Yeah, man. Cookie but dough is fun. it's vanilla base. I know. Well, you know, I'm a vanilla guy. Yeah. People are like, well, it's so boring. I'm like, that's just, I love it. A good, yeah. like a good, a piece of like uh, Entenmann's pound cake oh, with yeah. vanilla ice cream. Oh, come on. And it's like a little melted. Yeah. Oh, it's fucking. Yeah, man. Oof. Man. But how that's, simple is that? I know, but that's like, to me, like simple food is always the best. Of course. You of know. Of course. I mean, I think there's a way to execute higher level complicated food and it seems simple. Um Without, like, adorning the plate and all the smoke and mirrors, I think there's a lot of ways to do that. And that always lands in proper cooking technique with interesting flavor profile and high-end product. Of course. You know, so, you know, but at the end of the day, it always goes back to, like, simple food. You know, a beef tartare is a beef tartare. Yeah. The way we do it here is with beef heart, with an oyster aioli, herbs, and shrimp toast. But at the end of the day, it's beef tartare. Yeah. You know, so a short rib is a short rib. But, you know, ours is short rib that's been brined for seven days and then cooked pastrami style. It's just taking a, a, something that is simple and then just manipulating it to a way that is more elevated, I think, is like a cross between both. Because, you know, I, I also feel like when things are very simple, you have nowhere to hide. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's why people often fail when they try to do simple and they don't know what the fuck they're doing. It's they have nowhere to hide. So if your product is trash, everyone's going to know your product is trash. So if you bought a shit steak that day and you bought a bad pan that day, people will know. Oh, 100%. But but that separates – I think that's what separates people that actually care about what they're doing and want to serve you the finest quality product there is. Like you're being – your restaurant, your bakery, whatever is being patronized for your – understanding of how to you know cook and serve food 
or, or baked goods, right? Like, you know, properly and, and consistently. So if you're not doing that, like, I don't, I don't really know what you fucking expect at that point. Right. It's like, what do you, you think people are going to keep coming back? Well, it, and it goes, and I think for us also the further step is hospitality too. It's like, you sure. know, in that serving, putting a smile on, engaging with a guest, making the guest feel like they're number one and getting them back. For sure. You know, there's, listen, there's plenty of good bakeries I've been to that the fucking hospitality is trash. And if the food is even somewhat good, I'm still not going back. Yeah. You know, I just, I know, like, I, I don't like that. I mean, I, I personally run our businesses to have great hospitality yeah. all the time. So it's like, I feel like those are like the key components, consistency, um, you know, your product and the hospitality. 100%. Yeah. It's an experience. For sure. You know, you got to you gotta sell the 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 vibe of the place and the experience of the place. And well, I've seen the there. I mean, Derek's is right across from Chuck. So I've seen the, how it evolved from like day one to, and it's, you know, it's, it's evolved a lot. I think, you know, the bones of it are the same, you know, like where the case is the same, but like, you know, the things you do with the walls and what you did with the awning and the whole thing, it's just like, it's supposed to be more engaging. Yeah. People will remember it more that way. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, you have to have a, um, you have to have a, I don't know if lifestyle element is the right word or right, you know. Uh, oh, I get it. But, you know, something that is um, part of the experience, you know, that that people can say, I'm at Fireman Derrick's, you know, and they take a photo in front of the wall with their piece of pie or their piece of cake or something. Like people people post that online all the time. And I say online like Instagram and, and those type of platforms, you know, and then we repost them. So it's, you know, we sell a happy experience. Yeah. You know what I mean? The product – is uh, you're eating dessert, which, I mean, I feel like should always be a happy experience. And, uh, and you know, just the look and the vibe of the place and the way people greet you and, and the look of everything. I mean, su- super, super important, 100%. Um, man, dessert is a happy place for me. It, it really is. Like, I have such an incredible sweet tooth. Yeah. Can I tell you that I um, – what's the name of this pie? Crack pie. Uh-huh. It's not. It can't be called that anymore, right? Salted caramel. Yeah, that that it, yeah. thing. But it was called crack pie once upon a time. Yeah. Before yeah. the world got sensitive. Yeah. Um, 100%. So I, I, Christina Tosi obviously is famous for her crack pie. She and invented I'm, it, and I don't take any credit for inventing. And it. And that's fine. Yeah. And but I've had hers, and I'm not because you're here, but yours is better. I, thank you. Um, a lot of recipes or a lot of things like I can take a recipe. And kind of pick apart what I would do differently, mm. you know, with the recipe. Sure. And essentially, that's all I did was, in order to make that recipe mine, is I, you know, picked apart um, maybe a little ingredient here, a little technique here, sure. with a, you know, came up with our way of doing it. And, um, you know, the, the reason I started making it is because, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of this chef, his name's Michael Saperstein. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah, he uh, you know he does uh, sunshine provisions. Oh and, yeah, we have a history. Yeah, Rebel House up in oh, Boca. Yeah. yeah, we got a history. Me and yeah, are we gonna get into that? Uh, I don't know. Okay. I, I'm trying to trying to change in 2021. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, he he cut the recipe out of Bon Appetit magazine, brought it over to my commissary, and was like, because I was already selling him some other stuff, and he uh, he was like, can you make this pie? I'm like. Yeah, sure, man. I'll make this pie, whatever you want. You know, I, I mean, at that time, I was really into experimenting and, and, you know, trying new things and learning new things. So I said, sure. And 
It just kind of took off. I mean, salted caramel got big in general. Just that flavor profile That's got huge. That's one of my top three, though. Huh? Yeah. Salted caramel. I could eat yeah. a metric fuck ton of salted caramel anything. Yeah. So I just started, I started making it for him, and then people, you know, people really liked it. So it's, uh, why wouldn't I sell it? Right. No. Why, it was easy. It was an easy sale. I, um, and listen, nothing, taking nothing away from her because her stuff is amazing. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I like Derek's more. It's just, Thank you know, you. I'm a, but also when it comes to pie, I'm a very like simple pie guy. I don't like very complicated pies. Yeah. So like, you know, key lime pie, coconut cream pie, like the simple pies. I'm not a big fruit pie guy. Yeah. I, I do like them, but I, I'll never like go that way. Our pastry chef, Devin, she makes a passion fruit pie that is fucking unbelievable. Yeah. Like incredible. But then also, you know. And I'll save the rest of my questions, this or that, but like, because I know you guys have cakes and you're well known for your cakes too. Are you a cake or a pie guy? Mm, I'll always say, I mean, I'll always say a pie guy, but I sell so much cake that it's hard to to not love it's it. It's hard to, <laughs> yeah, it's hard to pick a, design, a designation. I, I would say that at this point, I'm I'm a dessert guy. I'll tell you, know? that's a good that's a good guy to be. Yeah. I'm yeah. a dessert guy. It's a good guy. To yeah. Be. You it's know? a good guy to be, to be a dessert guy. Love yeah. That. And then, and you know, I mean, we have the cookies are popular. The um, the cheesecakes are popular. The flans are popular. The bread pudding. Um, so it's like it's hit or miss with the bread pudding in the sense of sometimes it's like if when bread pudding's in style, it's like, yeah, people want, you want bread pudding, bread pudding, bread pudding. You like bread, do you like bread pudding personally? Uh, yeah, I do. I yeah. do like bread pudding. It's like one of my least least sweets that I like. Like if I had to choose between like a bowl of ice cream or bread pudding, I'm picking a bowl of ice cream. Oh, 100%. But yeah. what about hot bread pudding with ice cream on top? Nah. I mean, you can't I mean, I'm not saying I'm, a, I'm not, listen, it's like I'm not turning her down. I'm just saying. Yeah. Like I'm. If I had to choose one, I'd be like, I'd rather just a bowl of ice cream. Yeah. I just like the bread pudding thing to me. I honestly like savory bread pudding more than I like like sweet bread pudding. I could see that. Yeah. Like when I was with Norman, we did a, we did a savory bread pudding, uh, cornbread and foie bread pudding with quail. And it was pff, so fucking good. Yeah, I believe so that. So good. Maybe, maybe I have a skewed uh, idea of... Of what Miami likes. But the question that I was asking just out of curiosity was, how much of his business is pie? Because I personally prefer pie, but I've never thought of Miami as being a pie town. Well, I know, me, whenever people tell me, like, I went to Derek's, I'm like, all right, cool, what'd you get? I hear more more often cake than I do pie. Yeah. And it and it shocks me a little bit because I'm like, I wouldn't think, I'm also not a cake person, but yeah. I, I wouldn't think about going to Derek's for cake. You know what I mean? Like... It's like there's certain people like Cindy from Cindy Lou's. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't think about going to Cindy Lou's for pie. Sure. I would go there for cookies. Sure. Because she's known for cookies. You know, so it's just, I'm, so oftentimes I have that, like my business partner, his three-year-old daughter loves your chocolate cake. Yeah. So he takes her there like once every two weeks and she always just comes Gets up to me cake. and she's like, she shows me the cake. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, it's chocolate cake. I guess you know? I just yeah. wonder whether there was, and, and you have an experience that at least in some ways is analogous to this. I wonder whether there was a period of time in the beginning where there was almost like a clientele getting acclimated to pie and eating pie and exploring pie. I, because at least grow, for me growing up here, pie was like if you had a gringa aunt or uncle 
Right. I have a comment. I think more often than not, we hear the term that Miami is not a certain thing without actually having a proper representation of that. Right? Fair, yeah. So saying that Miami's not a pie town, but not having a proper pie place isn't giving it a proper ab- opportunity to be a pie town. Well, but yeah. but I think there's... It, it, maybe. But yeah, no. I'm I mean, not saying why it's not well, a pie town. Or, th- or even... I, I wonder whether you'd agree that it wasn't a pie town before you showed up, or maybe it still isn't. I mean, I think that you... I think that people take things out of context. And I say that from a standpoint of, like, if you look at New York City, right? New York City has been around for so much longer of a period of time. And their first wave of immigrants came in, you know, what, in the early 1900s? You know, in the 1800s and the 1900s. That brought, you know, all kinds of different culture to that city and all different kinds of food and things like that. Whereas, you know, Miami really didn't get even developed till the early 1900s. And then as it grew, it kind of grew into a retirement village for a lot of people. And then, yeah, in the 60s and 70s, you had this huge influx of Cubans and and then so on and so forth, uh, all the other different cultures. So, you know, Miami, I feel it's in the process of hitting its stride when it comes to all the different culture of food and arts and all that, you know, all that type of stuff, you know, entertainment. Um, and you see what's going on now, especially, you know, especially with uh, the all those big tech. Thank you very much. All the big tech companies that are trying to get are you know, are being lured here. You're hearing about all these Wall Street guys and gals that are coming down here. The mayor's having phone conversations with Elon Musk. So, you know, like I feel that, um, you know, I feel that Miami could be a lot of things Mm -hmm. as long as there's people in this town that are doing it well. Uh, I don't I don't think Miami's like, no, no, we don't want that. You know, I think Miami just I mean, look, you you know, they talk about how Miami fans are fair weather fans. Right. The Dolphins fans, Heat fans, Canes fans. Well, but but to the point I'm trying to make is. Is that, and then you see when they're winning, and there's fucking tons of fans. Oh, all of a sudden they have all these fans. Miami loves a winner, man. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, they, they, if you want their attention, you have to be really good, good, really good, great at what you do. Yeah, I'll say one thing about Dolphins fans, just because we're just like a little under the bus here. But, uh-huh. um, like we talked about before we started recording, the Dolphins have not been to a Super Bowl since 1984. Yeah. I'm, people could. Fact check me, but I think I'm accurate. And there are still Dolphin fans. I think we've won like three World Series, five NBA, four, three NBA, four NBA championships. All, we went to this. We have a soccer team now. Things. But there's still Dolphin fans. It's a football town. It's a football town. Yeah. But imagine if they were winning, how many Dolphins right. fans would oh, no, be? I mean, be. forget about it. We would have to paint restaurants fucking teal and orange. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So I guess my, my point was not to, you know, Put Miami down as a pie place, but my, what was more curious? Damn was, you, Nick! And, and and also curious about whether you two share any of this experience with. Have I know for you, like you have people come into Ariette and experience a lot of shit for the first time. But that's what I mean is that sure. But but I'm, I, I get it. I know what you're saying that you need somebody doing it in order for it to become a thing in the place. 
I'm not putting down. I'm just. I'm not. Listen, no one is. Why are you being so sensitive? No one is accusing you of putting anything down. All I'm saying is that give them an opportunity. Sure. And there's listen. There's going to be people that are are not about it, and it's fine. Yeah. There's still going to be something else for them. I'm just curious as to whether you've had any experience and what that was like. Like somebody coming into your place and falling in love with a particular pie that they'd never had. Time out. And they come in over. Yeah. You have cheesecake, right? Yes. Okay. So there's a good chance that people could go there. And maybe not like Derek's Cheesecake, because the only thing that they've ever had their entire life is Cheesecake Factory. Sure. That's it. Well, I think that I think that uh, a lot of times people... I get this question a lot. It's like, they come in, and I mean, not as much since I'm not actually working the counter that much anymore, or behind the counter, but I go to the stores enough times where... Throughout the week, I'll at least, you know, serve some customers, say hi and everything like that. Um, they come up and they're like, what's your favorite What's your favorite flavor? What's your oh, favorite pie? I hate that. Yeah, it's like, what do you like, man? Like, what flavors do you like? You like chocolate and peanut butter? We have chocolate and peanut butter. Oh, you like citrus? Butter. We have key lime. You like fruit? Mm-hmm. We have apple. We have guava berry. Oh, what's guava berry? Oh, it's mixed berries with guava. You like mint and chocolate? We have that. You like coconut? We have that. So it's... I think I think oh, if you come in, I love it. Yeah, if you come yeah. in with the expectation of the person behind the counter is going to tell you what to order, I think you know you you kind of do yourself a disservice as opposed to saying I'm a fucking chocolate and peanut butter guy. What do you have to have chocolate and peanut butter? Oh, we have our chocolate and peanut butter pie. Let me get a piece of that, and then you're actually trying. A, a flavor that you already know and love, but just done by a different artist. Sure. You know, you've never had that artist uh, that artist rendition of it. So, you know, I think I think that's um, you know I think that's where like if you go into a place, you know, you, like you, you don't come here, uh, and if you've never had uh, it, you love short rib, right? You know, you love short rib. You've never had the short rib here, but you just and you love short rib, but you decide to order the monkfish. It's like well, uh, man, I love that dish too. Well, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, why would you order it? You know, you go try the short rib there. Right. You try the short rib first. You come back for the monkfish. Yeah. Right. It's like you know that's how I approach all new places I go to. Like, I'll have what kind of maybe what they're known for first, or like what my fla- like my palate wants. Sure. And then if apparently if it's what lines up, then that's cool. Um, and then I'll come back for like the weird shit. If there's like weird flavors, like I mean, how much. Like how many people come in and order the cookie? Was it? It's the cookie pie, right? It's like the all, Nutella stuff cookie. No, no, isn't there a pie the Cookie that, Monster? <laughs> the pie that's got all the things. It's got all like pretzels and cookies and shit. I remember when I used to, uh, I used to eat that one a lot. It's got a chocolate crust. The the Munchies pie or the Super Bowl pie? Maybe a Munchies. It's pie. like it's a magic so- bar, but like, like with sounds like with M and M's and pretzels and it all that. It didn't have M and M's. It didn't have an M and M's. The salty monkey pie with Maybe. the pretzels on I top. Know, I love these names. It's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it was white on the top, and then it had a chocolate crust on it. I don't know. I mean, we have a Cookie Monster pie, which is, but that doesn't have a chocolate crust. It's got a chocolate chip crust and then a cheesecake filling. And then they put love that. Yeah, they put uh, <laughs> maybe it is that. <laughs> yeah, they put pralines and caramel and whipped cream and more cookies and chocolate and caramel. Producer, look look it up. Come on. Yeah, I'm telling you, this was a. Uh, I don't know. I fucked up a lot of those things, man. Yeah, is it Cookie Monster pie. That yeah, Cookie Monster. 
No, that's not it. That yeah, that's a Cookie Monster, but I don't know. I um, I'm gonna look it up and then I'll send you I'll send you a picture tomorrow. And there's stuff that we've put on the menu and it's ran its course and then we take it off the menu. Um, you know, you, that's another thing. That's another part of business too. Is the longer you know, the longer you've been doing it, you know what sells and you know what doesn't sell. Yeah, for sure. And why are you gonna keep something on your shelf that's not selling? You gotta adjust. Yeah, always. So you know, sometimes people come in and I'll get comments from the staff like. Oh, today three people, you know, they asked for this pie. And it's like, yeah, except those are the only three only people three that people. are asking right, for it, right. you know, so. Yeah, I feel like, you know, as a chef, sometimes you have those uh, menu items you want to, like, drive in. Yeah. So even if they don't sell, you stay consistent because it represents your brand and, like, who you are. Yeah. Like, our foie dish is that, you know, like, we'll go days. That we don't sell any, and then we'll go Friday night, and we'll sell 10 large foies. Sure. You know what I mean? So it's one of those things that it all depends on the clientele. But, yeah, you have to adjust your menu. You have to move, you know, you have to pivot with whatever happens. Well, I take a very simplistic approach, which a lot of people, I don't I don't think they uh, they uh, they comprehend it. I mean, not, not my approach, but just the approach in general. If somebody came to me tomorrow and said... Derek, we want to buy 20 million key lime pies from you a year. We're going to give you a 10-year contract to produce 20 million key lime pies. You're going to profit $2 off each key lime pie. Uh, where do I sign? And that's the only pie I produce. Uh, where do I sign? You know what I mean? And, and, and people, if you think in that mentality, it makes you pick a menu that you can duplicate that mentality sure. over and over and over yeah, with. Yeah. And um, you know, another thing that people don't understand too or comprehend is that there's 350 million people that live in the United States of America. I mean, there's 325 per the census, but I mean, come on, there's at least 20 million people here that are not registered. Sure. And I'm not saying anything derogatory <laughs> or negative about any of them. It's just let's say 350 is the number, right? Undocumented people eat pie too. Yeah. yeah. They also listen to this podcast. They love do, pie. Do they? I'm sure yeah. they do. We are the number one chef-driven podcast based in Miami among undocumented yeah. Americans. I, I wear that as a badge of honor. You know. Like, so, and they all eat at least three to four times a day. Mm-hmm. So when you, at, when you start thinking about those numbers and you compound that, you know, and you multiply that by how many days there are in a year, I mean, well, that, that's, that number, uh, 20 million is insignificant, you know, right. uh, and, and I think, if you, you know, that's how I've always, the lines of which I've always thought, you know, from, you know, put the pies that are on the menu, how easy they are to mass produce, right. and mass produce in high quality, not, you know, cut your quality and go to shit. That's where it gets complicated, right? Not really, in my opinion. Today they have so much technology. Yes. Machinery-wise, yes. storage-wise. Um you know, there's really no excuse. I mean, the only excuse would be if your costs get out of control, you know, from a standpoint of bringing in that, you know, whatever product that is. But if you're producing in mass quantity, I mean, you're dictating your costs for the sure. most part. So, um, you know, you and you stay ahead of it. You know, you stay you're, you don't become uh, you, you, you know, you're you don't you're not at you're at the mercy of these big food purveyors. But you're also not at the mercy of these big food purveyors because there's a few there's a few of them in town and you know they're all competing for your business, right? You know, and and well, at the end of the day, they work for you. Yeah, they do, but but you have to get to a certain point where 
they also respect you. Sure. You know, and from a standpoint of like, yeah, this is a great customer and I'm not going to fuck around with them. Well, I, I also, that's interesting because, man, it takes a lot of coaching to get like the younger chefs to understand this stuff. But when you sit at a table with a large company, mass commodity, purveyor, yeah. whatever it may be, you have to come prepared mentally. Sure. So you know what the fuck you're talking about. You know what you need. You're very, very black and white about things. So you can get exactly what you want out of it. True. You know, you can't just come like huffing and puffing like, I want the best prices. Like, that doesn't mean shit. Yeah. I paid this. I need to pay that. I paid this before. I need to pay that. Your service was bad here. I need it to be this. Like, you just need to come correct. Yeah. Because even if you don't have the brand awareness to know, like, they're coming in and like my brand is huge they still want your money they still want your commission they still want all that shit so the more prepared you are from a chef perspective or an operator perspective of all those things the better you're going to be yeah and it's like i think that's where a lot of people miss the boat like if you stop watching all these losers the purveyor people mm-hmm. they're just going to quarter here a nickel here a quarter here and then slowly but surely after six months your prices are going to be astronomical and you don't know why for sure. It's because you weren't watching. For sure. So, you know, I have a, a very, like, love-hate relationship with, like, purveyors because my thing is, why do you need me to be on top of you for you to look out for the business that's providing for you, right? Yeah. I know that it's my job, but now you – I if six months pass and something happens and all of a sudden I'm like, well, what the fuck? Everything went up 20%. Um, now your job is in jeopardy because I'm going to start shopping you around. I'm honest with them from the jump. Me too. I tell them I'm not loyal to any of you. I'm loyal to whoever that. is giving me the best price. I love that. And and none of them, nobody's offended by it. Like, they totally understand. But I, I look at them, and these are, you know, some of these guys are guys that I've had, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year relationships with. Right. And it's like, look, my loyalty is to who's giving me the best price. It's not to you. It doesn't mean I don't value your friendship, acquaintance, acquaintance ship, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But, ship of some kind. Yeah, but I uh I'm loyal to the to the dollar, you know, the all you know, the almighty dollar. And and who's going to give me the best price? Who's going to bring in what it is I need in the quantities that I needed and you know, those are the those are the folks that that I'm going to buy from. And um you know, I I have the I, it goes back to that that 20 million key lime pie mentality. Hey, bring the eighteen wheeler and drop it off. You know, drop all the butter and graham crackers and you know condensed milk and stuff like that. I'll buy it by the. I want to buy it by the pallet load, and here's what I'm willing to pay for it. You know, and and if I feel like if you think along those lines, you get less distracted from buying all the little bullshit here and there. You know, you really focus in on the important things to your business and the things that you're buying in the largest quantities and for the cheapest price. And I think, you know, you, you, you have to, you have to look at it like that. That's, that's why Chipotle and McDonald's and Starbucks and, you yeah. know, all those other ones are so successful because they've done that on such a huge scale. Well, they have power too. For sure. But buying, it, buying power is key. It's huge. It's yeah. huge. But I don't think even as a, as a, restaurateur as a chef i think if you hone in on what you're you know what you're selling you know you can do it just on a smaller scale but it doesn't mean you're doing you're not following kind of the exact same formula right 
I, I, it's interesting because a lot of people don't understand what it goes, what goes into like the back end of the operation. Sure. You know, like how important those like um, bones of ordering and because it all ends up, the customer ends up paying for all of it. For you sure. Know, they end up paying for all of it. So how you negotiate that at the beginning is in- incredibly crucial because yeah. that's what keeps the business viable. And then keeps the center of the plate cost down so the customer is not play, paying like an arm and a leg for something. For sure. So it's it's an interesting dynamic that a lot of people don't totally understand. A lot of young chefs don't understand it either. They think it's just all about cooking. Like, this is a business. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, we are running a business, albeit a very romantic, passionate, driven business. It is a fucking business at yeah. the end of the day. Because without... The doors being open and the lights being on, there is no romance or passion or no. whatever the fuck. So, man, that was great. That was good. I like that whole. I love talking about business. Well, I think that's where a lot of chefs and investors in chefs get it kind of twisted or get, or don't understand it. You know what I mean? Like you have these great chefs who are super talented. That have have no clue business sense, and then you know you get in with somebody who's your investor or whatever, and um, they don't know anything about cooking. They only know about money and right. the way to run a business. And and if you guys work well together, um, if you work well together and you're honest and you're trustworthy and and you know you you have the same goal and the same vision, then yeah, you can be very successful. It's where you know you get you get people that are highly talented that get with you know, shitty, greedy businessman, or you, you're, you know, the other way around, you get, you invest in somebody who just doesn't have the work ethic and, and, you know, the understanding that, Hey, look, this is a business and we have to run it like a business. You can't go out and buy a thousand dollars worth of fucking truffles that are going to sit in the, in the, in the refrigerator and go bad, you know, or any crazy product like that. Like we buy truffles. Well, but you know what I'm saying? I mean, <laughs> 500 bucks yeah, a week. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, but you have you have a lot of people that I'm sure buy it and have no clue what to do with it. They just yeah. see it as a, something sexy that they're buying. Yeah, we have a twenty two dollars soup on the menu because it has truffles. Yeah, so, but uh, you know that that stuff's all key. You know, you have to have a good. You know, you have to work well. You have, you know, have the synergy with whoever your business partners are. I, I think uh, that interesting relationship between financial investors and chefs, if that was more thought out between the both of them sure I think more restaurants would stay open and I understand why that relationship isn't always well thought out because you know what we do is like a passion someone wants to give you money to open something up I mean I was there and I went through a shit time too yeah. and like and then you find uh, a partner that hopefully understands you which I'm very lucky to be there sure but it's like it's tough to find. It's not. It's not always. And then both sides understand each other, right? Like, sure. you, for the chef to understand the business side, and then the business side to understand the chef side, or operation side, however you want to paint that picture, is incredibly rare. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I think how I tell people all the time is like, you need to think about the business from who you are partnering with to the foundation of what your lease looks like to what the long-term vision of your business is like. Like, This isn't just about like, I want to cook great food. Sure, but cooking the food is almost second nature to us. It's easy to us, I think, at this point. Sometimes some is better than others, but like the reality of it 
is the food can be great, but if the business model is not great, you will fail and you will close. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I don't understand about chefs, and I'm not saying I'm not putting all the blame on chefs. I mean, I'm sure business partners have something to do with it, too. Is we have a lot of blame, too. The chefs. Yeah, we do. Well, so the part, like one of the things that I don't necessarily understand is you open up a restaurant. Mm -hmm. You nail the menu. You nail your pricing, your ambiance, your, you know, your customer service, all that stuff. And then like two or three years later or maybe shorter or maybe longer, whatever, you go and you open up another fucking restaurant doing a whole different type of cuisine, right? And then before you know it, you've spread yourself too thin. You're doing, you're managing this cuisine, you're managing that kind of cuisine, you're managing that kind of cuisine. And I mean, let's be honest, you've, everybody's heard the saying, uh, master of none or, or, you know, um, what's the other saying? Jack uh, of all trades, master of yeah, ma yeah, jack of all trades, master of none. And, you know, and then you see like chefs who have this talent who I guess have either saw the money or they saw, or it was like an ego thing or they got bored making the same food over mm -hmm. and over and over again. And that to me, I think is where a lot of guys make the mistake of doing stuff like that because it's like, what are you bored of making money hand over fist? Like, so what you have to cook, keep cooking the same dishes. I mean, forget about like McDonald's and Chipotle, right? Like, Oh, those are lower end, you know, Matt, you know, hot, but like look at a restaurant like Hillstone's. I mean, the fucking place is mobbed. Two-hour-long wait Great. In, in Coral Gables. And it's been like that for, what, 20 years? And I'm not saying that, that it's some master chef food, but the food's high quality, you know, in the sense of, you know, the quality of what they're serving you, the experience is top-notch, the way it's managed, you know, the, 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 the efficiency of everything. And it's like, so imagine if the guy that started, you know, started Hillstone said, well, fuck this, I'm bored, instead of opening... 50 more hillstones that are all making five, 10, 20, whatever it is, million dollars a year. You know, I want to go make Chinese food. So what the fuck? What well, for what? That's a good point. Also remember that the hillstone company has like several different concepts. I understand that. The, the hillstone company has, I believe, seven different concepts ranging from super fine dining all the way down to like a taco shop. Right. Once you get big enough, you can do that, though. Sure. My my thing is because me as a chef, I'm going through expansion now. Sure. Right. I think when you have one location as a chef, you the depending on the size of the restaurant. Now, let's say if the restaurants, every situation is different, but let's say the restaurant's doing twelve million bucks a year, right? Uh -huh. And you're running at a twenty five percent profit margin, right? Which is an incredible place to be. Yeah. If you're doing that. Fuck, I mean, that's pretty amazing. You're at the top of the food chain. Right. You probably shouldn't be looking to change that menu much. You probably shouldn't be looking to change that operation much. But chefs, as people, are creative individuals that they want to grow, right? Sure. So then you look at other opportunities. Can you imprint a different concept or a different demographic through something else? Yeah. And I think that's where it happens. Now, where chefs are to blame is when they lose sight of what the goal is, right? The goal is to serve good food at a good price and make people extremely happy. Yes. Right? 
And I think that they lose sight of that sometimes, me included. You know, like, as you build other concepts, you have to put the same energy and parts of yourself into all the concepts. You which have I, to... Which you I don't to, think happens. Which... What'd you say? Which I don't think happens. Which, you're right. It doesn't always happen. Yeah. Um, unless you're willing to make that sacrifice as a human, you shouldn't be willing to grow. No. Right? You know... Um, I think the more you, the more connected you are to a concept, the better it's going to be. Yeah. Right. And it's tough. It's a lot of weight to carry. Now, if you're looking at it as like a money grab, that's completely different. Talking about money grabs, there's several high-profile chefs, huge names, sure, worldwide names that open up other restaurants that are like maybe their flagship, and I won't name any names. But it's happened in Miami several times over. I've seen it. That it's basically paint by numbers. When they open up that restaurant, these are the 15 dishes that that restaurant in New York or L.A. or Nashville or wherever the fuck it came from is well known for. And they basically cookie cutter it elsewhere. Right. And it depends on the city that they go to whether it's successful or not. Sometimes Miami doesn't really see the writing on the wall and says, this is just a cookie cutter of something else. Right. And they just flock to it, right? Now, sometimes it's great, but it's not as good as like getting uh, the soulful part of what a chef or a restaurateur gives to their concept. You know, like you're essentially getting the copycat version of the OG, mm-hmm. you know? And it, it, it could be frustrating, but when, when you grow that growth part, it's all, it all depends how much you yourself are willing to give up to that concept as a human yeah. to make it special. And it's tough. It's fucking hard. I'm only saying because I, me, myself personally, am going through all of that right now. And it's like it's, it's a lot of weight to carry because, you know, you want it to be special, right? You want it to be good. And it depends how, like, you're, how you relate to things in your own brain. Sure. How much you're willing to give to it. Well... I mean, I use this example. I use myself as an example, right? If all of a sudden you saw in the in the newspaper, Fireman Derricks is opening up a, I don't know, classic Italian food restaurant, uh, Chinese, whatever, a sushi joint, right? I would hope that people that know me and are close to me would look at me and say what the fuck are you doing i would tell you that yeah you know what i mean like what the fuck are you doing and and please thank you and um you know like i'm creative too but I, i i say this uh humbly you've all had my desserts you know i i you know, I feel that everybody enjoys my desserts. They're very uh, high end, and and you know the the taste is there, the the quality is there. Deliciousness. Thank you. That's what that's what, how I relate. Food yeah. is like, is it delicious? Yeah, hundred percent. Well, I can cook as well as I can bake, and and but I have no desire to stand in a kitchen and come up with menus and talk about seating and all that shit. I cook at home for my for my girl and my and the baby that's growing in her stomach. 
Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And uh, and I have a stepson. He's a sweet boy. He's like he'll be four. You know what I mean? And that's where I'm able to kind of get that creativity or you know juices flowing and 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 all that type of stuff. And um, I mean, look, I we're all each our own person. I'm sure. not saying that what I'm doing is right and what you or anybody else is doing is wrong. I'm just saying from a from a purpose of people who are listening to this podcast who are looking for any type of tips or just to hear the way that the guest that you have on here is brain, you know, thinks. I mean, and I'm kind of just giving that to uh, the folks that, you know, that'll be listening to it. Mm. You know what I mean? That are, that are listening to it. So um, that's, uh, you know, that's always been, that's always been my approach is a very simplistic you know, really fine tune the menu, fine tune the experience, and put things on the shelf that continue to sell over and over and over again. Right. Um, thank you. And uh, I, if I ever did, a, if I ever did a restaurant, if I, it would be something that I did as just because I was like, "Fuck it, I have so much free time, I, I want to do something," and, and, and I would do breakfast. Because I feel like it's so easy to duplicate that simplicity. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? You you know, eggs, bacon, grits, hash browns, pancakes, you know, maybe biscuits and sausage gravy. You know what I mean? Easy stuff that is that is comforting, that is easy to produce in mass quantity, that you already know your margins. Your margins are pretty much going to stay the same. And, I mean, listen, uh, who doesn't like eating fucking breakfast, man? Oh, uh, man. I, I mean, that's why Chugs exists. Right? Yeah. Because I love breakfast all day. Yeah. This episode of Pancong Podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Drew Estate and Master Blender Willie Herrera, who are proud to introduce the Herrera Esteli Miami Cigar. Crafted by Level 9 Cuban Rollers at El Titan de Bronce in Calle Ocho, the complete Herrera Esteli Miami line is expertly rolled with a lavish Ecuadorian Habano Oscuro wrapper over a rich Ecuadorian Sumatran binder with select fillers from the Dominican Republic and Nicaragua. The new look of Herrera Esteli Miami features a black and gold color tone and is available in the following five Vitolas. Nick, tell everyone, what is a Vitola? A Vitola, and by the way, I would like everyone listening to this ad to know, this is the first take, and we're doing very well. I, I am shocked. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on, and I have to say it's because of the ang- anxious coffee that Nick has made. Oh, man. Just wait for the poops. Uh, a Vitola, the term Vitola refers to the sizes of the cigars, right? So some of the common ones that people hear are Robusto and Corona and mm. Churchill uh, those are all terms for vitolas. The five vitolas that just the, I want to interrupt you because it's not always about the size of the cigar. That's true. It is the type of cigar. So tell them that's true. So the five the five vitolas that uh, that Herrera Teli comes in are Herrera Teli Miami Robusto Grande, five by fifty. Should we go with like uh, anglicized pronunciations? Is it a, for because your name is on the sandwich? Is this a Robusto Grande or a Robusto Grande? I mean, it depends. How do you feel like our listeners in Salina would feel? I want them to feel like it's Robusto Grande. Bueno, that's a good Vitola. So Robusto Grande, which is a 5 by 50 
by the way, for the uninitiated, 5 by 50 means it is 5 inches long and 50 sixty-fourths of an inch in diameter. So uh, close to 5 six. So just you have p- painting a picture here in your mind. Robusto Grande, which is a 5 by 50. Toro Especial, which is 6 by 52. Lonsdale Deluxe, a 6.5 by 44. Piramide Fino, 6.5 by 54. Short Corona Gorda, which is 5 and 3 quarters by 48. This cigar is exclusive to Drew Diplomat Retailers. For more information, you can visit DrewEstate.com. That's D-R-E-W Estate.com. Or follow them at, at Drew Estate Cigar on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Mike, you had this cigar. I know that you're a Drew Estate fan. I am a Drew Estate fan. I'm very glad that they've come on as a partner. As a general rule, I want to make sure that to the extent that we can, and we've pulled this off so far, we're only partnering with people and taking money from people whose products we're actually into. Like Santos. Uh, Absolutely like Santos Sangria. Santos Sangria. I I, I actually have told them, like, listen, I'll give you an ad because I'm out of Santos Sangria. Right. Uh, I have to say that um, after going through this ad, one of the things that sticks out to me the most is how very much I feel like this is softcore Cinemax porn at 11 o'clock. Explain to everyone a rich Ecuadorian (laughs) Sumatran binder how that doesn't sound very sexual. Listen, I, I don't know that the people at Drew Estate would object to our <laughs> selling not. them as a sexual product. Yeah. Uh, but in case anybody's curious about what that even means, so Ecuadorian Sumatran binder. So I, Sumatran is not a style of... That's the thing. ...of sexual style. It's not a sexual style. Got it. I mean, although it depends, some people do sexual things with their cigars. All right. Listen, you open this door. Man, we fucked this ad up already. <laughs> Jeez. No, but uh, but Ecuadorian Sumatran. That might sound confusing to people who know their geography because Ecuador and Sumatra are both places. It is a Sumatran binder, meaning that it is a variety of tobacco uh, named for Sumatra, but it was grown in Ecuador. And you see this a lot in cigars where you have a an Ecuadorian Connecticut wrapper. Uh, which means that it's a uh, Connecticut tobacco variety, but grown in Ecuador. People who listen to this podcast are going to hear us smoke. Pretty soon, we're going to have Willy Herrera, the master blender, on as a guest on the podcast. Uh, if you're curious about cigars, that is definitely one you want to tune in for. I have to say that I, I smoke a pretty good wide range of cigars, and I, I gravitate towards Drew Estate a lot. I mm-hmm. think that the consistent how consistent and good those cigars are is like very rare. And we've talked about that a lot. Like, you know, sometimes you'll get a cigar and then it'll be great. And then you go back to get it like six months later and it's just not as good. I've never had that experience with Drew Estate stuff. And it's like, I I don't know. I've, I've been a fan for a long time, way before they started paying me to say I was a fan. (laughs) Way before. No, it's true. Yeah, it's true. No, we've been to cigar shops together more than once. You've pointed out Drew Estate things. But that's what I I I smoked that. And that's awesome. The red label uh, Herrera Esteli, I smoke. Every week. Yeah, yeah. Every week, it'll be the first, like, you know, when I go to one of these places, I'll go, that's the first thing I grab, and then I'll go into something else second if I decide to smoke two or three that day. So I'm glad you brought that up because I want to make a distinction here. You you referenced the the one that has the the red red label label on it. Red and gold, yeah. And that's the core Herrera Teli, which is made in Esteli. Esteli is uh, the Nicaraguan sort of capital of cigar making. The Herrera Teli Miami that we'd been talking about is actually made, and this is referenced in the copy that we read, but El Titan de Bronce in, in Little Havana. Uh, so this is also a cigar that you want to go after. And I remember I, I uh, passed this along to 
one of our friends in the uh, social media sphere who was putting together a list of local businesses. And I said, ah. like, hey, you might want to check out El Titan de Bronce. Uh, and El Titan in Little Havana is not just in Miami, but in the country, one of a very, very small number of American cigar factories that actually distribute all over the place. So it's cool that, you know, uh, that this is a product that people everywhere have access to. Um, and and it comes from a small factory in Miami that has a, a very good reputation, not just all over the country, but all over the world. Somebody gave me one of these Miami ones for Christmas. So it was delicious. Merry Christmas. <laughs> so, again, this cigar is exclusive to Drew Estate, uh, to Drew Diplomat Retailers. For more information, DrewEstate.com or follow them, Drew Estate Cigar on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We expect sales to go up 20% after this ad. I might cut that out. <laughs> That's yeah. it's interesting you mentioned breakfast because I'm I'm such like a stickler for eggs and yeah. how I want my eggs cooked and how I like how I enjoy eggs. So like I literally had a thirty minute conversation with one of the very talented people in my kitchen about how to cook a fried egg. We had different opinions but pretty similar and it was just like I think the it's crazy because the egg is such a personal thing, like how you enjoy your eggs. Um, albeit, like, pretty easy to duplicate in theory. It's like how that person cooks that egg is so fucking varied. Yeah. You know? And it depends. Like, the three of us, I know you like breakfast. I now know you like breakfast. I fucking love breakfast. I can guarantee you that the three of us will scramble our eggs differently. Yeah, but you can systemize it, though. And and I say yeah. that... I mean, you know, at the end of the day, a scrambled egg is going to hit a pan and someone's going to have to cook it. And you cannot control how that human cooks that scrambled egg unless you're standing over their shoulder and watching them. True, but you can systemize the mix, per that's se. That's true. Yeah, like, I mean, that's accurate. Like, let's say every single one of your scrambled egg dishes is three eggs, right? And you decide that... You like putting water in it, you know, or you like putting cream in it to f- yeah. fluff it up or whatever. Right. So, hey, three eggs, you know, you can already, like, pre-mix it, weigh out, you know, what three eggs weighs out with your with whatever you're, you know, whatever you mix in. If you throw something in there, I mean, the only, the only difference would be, obviously, that person understanding how hot or not yeah. hot the pan needs to be. And then the medium in which the the fat medium in which you cook the scrambled egg, like are you using margarine? Are you using butter? Are you using clarified yeah. butter? What are you using? Are you using a beef fat? Like there's so many things. I I mean I feel like I spend ninety percent of my life right now thinking about how people are going to scramble my eggs, and it's yeah. fucking nuts. I know that sounds fucking weird, yeah. but it's it's nuts to me because. How I may like my eggs is not the way that you like them or the way, you know, when you're talking about a fried egg, fried eggs are pretty standard, right? Sure. Fried eggs, the fat that you use as a medium will change depending on the human that's cooking them. Sure. So for me, it's always like clarified butter and a little bit of olive oil. And it's like that to me makes the perfect fried egg. I have conversations with other people that disagree. It's just like this is why I feel like breakfast, albeit very easy, is so complicated and then you have to simplify it for someone that this is their day-to-day um and this is their job and it's not like me that's been fawning over like how to cook a fucking scrambled egg for 20 hours a day right now you know yeah yeah but you can tell them listen 
this is how you're going to do it. Yeah, yeah. Like, the only option is this clarified butter and olive oil mix. Like, yeah. That's If accurate. I catch you using pa- uh, Pam, I'm going to throw you the fuck out of here. Or, you know, uh, canola oil, like, I'm going to throw you the fuck out of here. You know, so, so I think you have that control. I think for things like uh, grits, like, take... You know, 10 pounds of grits, add uh, whatever the amount of, you know, water is and uh, whatever else you like, adding butter, you know, or any type of cream product. I mean, so I think you can you can systemize, like, all that type of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's all accurate. Yeah. I mean, that's what makes that go, builds into the consistency aspect. Of course. Of systemizing, like, this is these are the things that you use. Yeah. This is the fat mix you use to cook that egg and cook that egg and cook these things like that's i mean and that's kind of like what i mean is um people like us think about it to an exhausting amount so that the other people don't have to think about it for sure so this is just the way it is and then we figured out that this is what we think is the best way to cook it so you just cook it that way well that's why you're the boss yeah, yeah I, I mean, that's how that works, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hey, true. this is how you make the fucking milkshakes, you know? Like, you put this much ice cream, this much milk, and this much of uh, pie. You guys do milkshakes? We pie shakes, cake shakes, cheesecake shakes. I tell people all the time when they ask what kind of milk milkshakes that we make, I'll tell them, I'm like, you can have any type of milkshake you want. You want an empanada and a milkshake, I'll make you an empanada and a milkshake. That's an interesting milkshake. I don't know what it'll taste like. I'm game for that. Yeah. I'm game. We could try that. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> we could do like a buffalo chicken empanada milkshake. Oh, man. That sounds like a protein shake. Yeah. <laughs> that that might be interesting. A little sweet and salty and spicy Well, mix. but if it was a sweet empanada, then I think we're on to something. Well, it would be like uh, it would be like taking a piece of apple pie. Like if you made an apple, you know, an apple right. pie empanada. But or if whatever. you did like a, a trigo shake, yeah, with an apple pie, I think that sounds actually kind of delicious. Yeah, it does. It does. I the thing that you know the thing for me is I want it to be as simple as possible. So it's it's uh, add a piece of pie. Amen to that. You know, add this much ice cream, add this much milk. Is it a whole piece of pie in the shake? The pies are a whole piece. The the pie shakes get a whole piece of pie. Fuck. The uh, the cake shakes get half of a slice of cake, and the cheesecakes get a whole slice of cheesecake. Man, I'm so hungry right now. Yeah. It's incredible. Well, I, know, I have just such an incredible sweet tooth, it's nuts. I mean, we're not open right now, but I know the guy that has the keys. Pancom so. <laughs> <laughs> Podcast, on the road, we'll yeah. be right back. <laughs> on the other side of this Drew Estate-sponsored ad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if Drew Estate wants to pay for our milkshakes, <laughs> I am more than happy to take those breaks. <laughs> oh, man. That's good shit, man. That's good shit. So, uh, other than... Um, what was it that I asked Willie? Do you jet ski? Like, what do you do for fun other than... Fun? than <laughs> yeah. Like jet skiing. Do you like jet skiing? I got um, three people hit me up like, why did you ask me if you like jet skiing? I was like, I was out of things. I don't know. No idea. Do I like jet skiing? Uh, no, I I, I, that wasn't a legitimate no, no, question. No, no, no. What do I do for fun? Um, Man, I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm, I know this is going to sound kind of... Kind of... I don't know if boring is the right word, but I uh, lately I, I just enjoy learning, man. I just like I just enjoy taking opportunities to learn. Um, I'm born and raised in South Florida, but I was never really taught 
uh, how to speak Spanish fluently. Hmm. So, like, I work with a tutor three times a week, which is great. Amazing. Yeah, um, I think it's very important to be fluent in Spanish, especially down here, and especially uh, like I've been to. I, I like traveling to South America. I've been to Mexico. I've been to Mexico City, which is one of the coolest places I've ever been. And you know, to be able to go down there and speak Spanish fluently, it's you know, I, I think it's a it's a must a must to really just have that uh, experience. You know, have that tremendous experience. Like, I mean, I did it even without speaking Spanish fluently, but I think it just heightens it and and. Um, I think from a business standpoint, it's huge. You know, you have all these uh, different folks from all con- all different parts of South America, Central America that are here that are doing business. Um, you know, you have some of these big purveyors that ship, uh, you know, that ship to the islands, ship to, you know, Central America and, and other places. So um, I uh, I do that. You know, I like listening. I like I like reading books aka listening to books on tape you know i really enjoy that process um i love how you said on tape yeah that's good it makes it easy really dates yourself it makes it easy i love um you know it makes it easy what else uh just i just enjoy doing business you know and, and i say that like going to the store uh saying hi to people developing employees like I, i'm doing for I, i'm doing my job for fun in the sense of oh, to me that's i understand that 100%. yeah that's my fun yeah i mean i like uh people ask me all the time like man you work a lot i'm like yeah but i i love my job yeah and i have so much fun doing my job i like you know from all the aspects even the stressful ones like the business ones sure. like i i really do enjoy the the business aspect of our work and um Kind of like everything it entails. As much as, I wouldn't say as much as, but like the creative chef <coughs> perspective, like I love that shit too. Um, but I, I really do love the whole scope of all the work. You know, the dining room on a Friday night at 8.30, working expo, working grill on a Saturday night, working brunch on a Sunday morning, you know, sitting in business meetings, sitting on development meetings, sitting in on design and marketing meetings. Yep. like. As fucking absolutely draining as it could be, I do love all of it, every aspect of it, you know, and it's, and it's, it's crazy, you know, when you finally find a job that you incredibly enjoy, yeah, it's just part of what you enjoy doing for fun. A hundred percent. You know, so like, what do you do uh, for fun? I go to restaurants. When you go to restaurants, it's part of your job, man. It's like you learn, you can learn something or understand something that you don't like about a restaurant or a concept or a dish that you maybe didn't know before. So all that shit is fucking work. Yeah. You know? Well, you're learning. Absolutely. You know, you're, you're taking the time to invest in your trade and, uh, you know, and see what other people are doing. Like, I, I, when I go travel places, I go to other pie shops. Yeah. You know, I go to other bakeries. For sure. Just to taste, you know, taste the product, you know, see see how they lay lay things out, display things. You know, see what every what uniform everybody's in. Oh, the display thing, man. Yeah. Man, that display case shit has been driving me fucking nuts. Yeah. It is a lot. You got to do it right. I know. You know what? A, a lot of, a lot of it stems from an experience I had in L.A. I went to a, it was a good diner, 
it was called All Day Baby. Mm-hmm. And it was good. All the food was good. The vibe of the place was good, but the display, like the whole like grab and go situation, was like so depleted and defunct. Yeah, it bothered me, and it to this day. And that was probably almost two years ago now. I still think about it now. Like when I look at your concept, and when I look at like Chug's concept, how we had it before, and how we're gonna have it now, and all those things. It's like the display case. If it looks empty, no one wants to buy that shit. No. Nobody wants to buy that shit. Nobody thinks that it's fresh. Nobody thinks that it's good. And honestly, like that experience, it has run in my brain nine million times because albeit that the experience was good, the food was good, the whole thing, but I'll never forget that display case. Yeah. Never. They literally had one thing in it. I, I want people to come in and want to lick the display case. Like, I know. That's, and that's how good and, I want and it your, to And yours is always full. Yeah. I think it's a good representation of what a display case should be like. Yeah. And it's like, this is what this is what we got. You know, like the other day I went to Cindy Lou's for cookies. Sure. And it was like, man, I wanted every fucking cookie in that motherfucker. Yeah. Like I did. I wanted all of them. And it's because she had it full. And, it, and what I loved about that, she's a pro. So... It was the end of the day for them. It was like, I think they closed at 6 and it was 5.30 and it was still full. Operating, good, everything was there. And I was like, you know, that to me is golden. You know what I'm saying? And it made me want to buy everything. And I did buy a lot of things. You 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 eat with your eyes. Oh, yeah? You eat with your eyes. And people that, that know food know that you eat with your eyes and know that, uh, you know... When you walk in, the way everything looks, the way the plates. I mean, how many times are you at a restaurant, you're waiting for your food, and you see all these other tables' food come out, and you're looking at what that server's bringing out on that tray, and you're like, holy fuck, that looks good. Like, what, what, uh, yeah, what did you order? Yeah. I mean, and, and that's, uh, that is, that's huge. And, and so I was going to say, it's not just with, with food. Like, in my experience with cigars, I'm not going to say the best because there's a lot of mom-and-pop shops that don't have the resources or the manpower to stay on top of stuff like this. Yeah. But the places that are known as being, like, great cigar shopping experiences, the minute you buy a cigar, somebody is going into the back for that cigar to replace the one you took out of the box on display. Yeah. And there's something about seeing that... I don't know if it's a symmetry thing or but your 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 eye goes to the empty spots first. And and that's not what you want people thinking about. You want people thinking about the product that is out. So Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's if you look at if you go into like successful retail stores and you look at the way they display things I mean, it's meant to be as visually pleasing Agreed. for you to see the most the most product, you know, in your panoramic view. Um, you know, it's des- it's designed like that. I mean, we're you know, uh, human beings are visual creatures. Are um, you know, buying things is a uh, there's a psychology behind there's it. There's a therapy behind that. Yeah. I know. Huge. I just, I know. Yeah, I think so. you're talking about two different things here. Well, I mean. I think he's talking about the psychology of how to reach the people who see it as therapy. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps. I'm the guy. That's all right. You know. But it, it, but it, it's, it's, I think for both of you, 
there's an interesting thing there where it's a little counterintuitive, right? Like the idea that if the display case is empty, no one wants to buy it. On some level, that's like a very common psychology. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Because if people have emptied out that case, it must be for a reason. Like the shit must be good. And yet an empty case is unattractive in a way that nobody will buy that last thing. I swear I've talked to Chef Devin about like this pastry case a hundred hours in the last like three weeks. Just like, you know, and I've gone to look at some and I've just it's exhausting. I'm exhausted by the pastry case because I'm not even involved with it. Really. Yeah. I'm just buying it. So it's like but we just gotta make sure it's full and it looks good all the time and it's and it's crazy for a high volume thing like what you experience over there. You have many more options. Uh, than what we did and what we will have, but it's just, it's a lot to consider. Well, but a lot of people don't understand my business, though. You know, from a standpoint of, I'm a food manufacturer. Yeah. Uh, You know, uh, the stores are access points for the product, you know, and and obviously... Revenue centers for the product. Yeah, customer revenue centers, but customer experience, an opportunity to take your in the non-COVID time of the whenever you know whenever the fuck that happens or previous before COVID, take your family out, sit down, enjoy. Yeah, everybody orders something different. Yeah, live. So you know, there's that's a huge a huge part of it too because that's what you know that that adds to the experience and and. You know, people people eat the product and they're like, man, we went to Fireman Derrick's and it was so nice. We sat and we all tried something. You know, we all ordered something different and we tried it and the coffee was delicious and, you know, all, all those different things that, that go along with that. But at a from a core standpoint, I mean, the core business is manufacturing food, manufacturing dessert product on, on a, at a high level and in, you know, and in high, and in high quantity. You know what I mean? In, in mass quantity. So um, that is where uh, people kind of don't understand that, you know, it really depends on what, you know, on what you're doing. And, and I'm able to offer what I'm, – I'm able to offer all those products and have enough of it in stock because I've, A, figured out how to produce it. And B, how to transport it, C, how to store it, and D, which I would say is A, sell it. You know what I mean? And, and, and that's where, you know, that's where my operation differs from, say, you know, a restaurant that just, that wants to, you know, that has a pastry chef that wants to, you know, keep their pastry uh, case full, um, you know, you you have uh, you have uh, a different operation because you have so many other things going on. Like my operation is strictly for displaying and selling that dessert. For sure. You know? Yeah. No. I mean the the focus aspect of things um, makes things more complicated. Sure. You know, like your focus is that case, mm-hmm. and our our focus is several different revenue centers. Sure. You know, bar, food, grab-and-go, pastry case, coffee, so on and so forth. It's like, it's a, it's it's interesting how intricate a small concept can be. So I, I wonder, yeah. your your business is so heavy on that display. Like, it, it's a totally different, two totally different models. But you've had your head in it, obviously, for a long time. And now you're sort of moving into this 
new world of display cases. It's a whole new world. There you go. Yeah. And this is where we will cut in with something that will Dazzling get us a season to from Disney. Derek. Season <laughs> assist from Disney. I love that. I no, love the Mandalorian. Actually, no, Disney. This Thank is where you. I take your audio and I put it over a reface of the two of you in an Aladdin movie. Oh man! Yeah, uh, was Aladdin? No, I, I was Aladdin. Yes, that I was love, Aladdin. Yeah, I wasn't sure. Uh, yeah, the magic carpet and the whole thing. That's right, the magic yeah. carpet. Yeah, and the tiger. They had a tiger. That's right. You want to be Jasmine or the tiger? <laughs> I think I'd be the tiger. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll take it. Sarah, Sarah says hi from Sa- from Larry's office. Oh yeah. yeah. Nice. Oh Sarah. Oh Sarah. That's one Larry. of our best guests ever. Sarah. Sarah's great. I love Sarah. She's uh, she's talented. That's right. And Larry got Derek on the show, even though I talked to Derek and I see Derek. Yeah. So Larry was the one who connected well, all these things. Yeah. Well, I went to excuse me. I went to Larry's office, and uh, God bless you. Yeah. I, I actually enjoy it because I love Larry, man. Yeah, I, I love I really going do. to his. I love going to his office because I think Larry's the only guy in the office. I think it's all women, and then Pretty, Larry. You're, I think you're. I would give you a ninety nine percent on that. I'm not totally sure, but I think you're right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Larry, Larry. Um, I'm not gonna say he gets abused by these women all day long. He does. But I'm definitely going to say that it's very entertaining to watch all of them interact. And they're all, like, young. Yeah, yeah. I'd say, like, 70% of them are young. Yeah. And then the other 30% are just, they've been beating up on them for years. Yeah. It's pretty typical agency stuff. Yeah. yeah. Sure, I don't know. Yeah. But uh, I, I've always I've always really liked working with Larry, and Sarah's great, and the other people in their office is great. And I do get a kick out of going to the office for our, like, monthly or or quarterly uh, meetings. And, um, you know, one of the things that I told him, what I told him was, is like, look, man, TV's kind of dead. You know, from a standpoint of, like, these networks having you in studio and whatnot. I go, everything is Netflix specials, Vice. Derek in an espresso commercial like I saw earlier today. Nespresso hit me up, said, hey, let's do a commercial. But um, take all those Nespresso dollars. I use it every morning. Listen, they sent me a nice machine, man. Did they? Yeah, as part of as part of doing it, they sent me one of their Vertuo. Yeah, I think I pronounced that it's right. Uh, advertising at yeah. PaidMag.com. <laughs> yeah, for Nespresso. Hey, Nespresso, send me another check. <laughs> and to uh, Pancom Podcast in Kendall. That's yeah. where our home headquarters are. I'm told podcasts are the future. <laughs> The machine actually works well, and the coffee. I use quite it every delicious. morning. Every yeah. morning, I use an espresso machine with the pods. Yeah, yeah, they're. Great. I have a Layave pods. Nice. Yeah, nice. It worked just fine. Yeah, <laughs> they they work just fine. That's their new tagline. Nespresso pods. They work just fine. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny, but that was good. It was like a whole like Derek first thing. It was like a little. I don't know how long those stories are. And then the next one was like, for the full clip, swipe up. And I'm like, man, look at Derek. He's on the yeah. espresso commercial. This is crazy, man. Listen, I, I had fun doing it. Um, but so I was I was telling, you know, I went to their office recently, you know, uh, Larry's office. I said, look, man, we got to start doing some shit with YouTube. Uh, let's do a Netflix. You're let's on YouTube right now. Actually, you're not because well, Nick well, is not there recording. Will, there will be a still of him yeah, with audio good. on YouTube. Yeah. Perfect. But, you know, I think that's, that's – uh, that's an, especially with what's gone on and um, 
you know, we don't know when Good Morning America is going to be back, when you're going to be able to make an in-studio, you know, New York appearance and talk about selling key lime pie, you know, buying it on Gold Belly or anything like that. I don't know when that's going to happen. Not only that, but I think that the TV in general sort of discounts the – partly discounts and also partly is hampered by their their revenue model and the formatting. But – I think we're starting to see that people have been wrong for a long time about people's attention spans. Sure. If you give them something good enough, they'll stick around for 20, 25 minutes. Like, there's there's a guy actually here who we've talked about inviting onto the podcast. Uh, he's got a YouTube channel called Guga Foods. Uh, he's got two channels, Guga Foods. We have? We've talked about this? We did, yeah. yeah. Uh, or you talked about this. We talked about it, and All you right. said, okay, cool. But uh, you don't <laughs> remember anything. about right. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. Uh, but he's uh, between his two YouTube channels, he's got like seven million subscribers. Uh, it's like us. It's Guga Foods and Suvi everything. But this guy is like, it's like thirty minutes of this guy. For example, he had a whole series that was just like, what if you tried dry aging steaks in all of it? So like, we aged one in Nutella, we aged one in peanut butter, we aged one in butter, we. And it's the kind of thing that, like, and each of those is maybe 20 minutes. And it sounds, and it's disgusting. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. <laughs> and they'll that. tell you, and, and they'll tell you, like, it's a very geeky, experimental thing. Yeah. But my point is that TV, and you've both done some TV, I'm sure. I haven't done any TV. Yeah, you have. You've done local TV. I'm saying, yeah, like, I mean, like the, a segment the, on TV. The 15 seg- second segments? We're no, you've, been, you've cooked on, on, in, a, in a studio and stuff. Uh, not really, no. I thought you, well, whatever, it doesn't matter. My point is that you have like a five-minute segment, and then you're hampered by the commercial thing. And what we're starting to see, I think, is that even teenage kids will watch somebody cook for half an hour. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But, but you know, it's, I say this, I say this not because I, I, I want to sound like a hater, um, but it kind of brings me joy. So maybe some people will think that I'm being a hater. I'm happy that the Food Network is in the shitter. You know what I mean? From a standpoint of, like, there's so much other competition for people to want to watch. Like, on you know, like with YouTube, with stuff on Netflix, uh, I mean, Hulu, like all these other, you know, Amazon, all these other um, uh, entertainment providers, if you want to call it that. Because for so long... Food Network just regurgitated the same crappy show over and over and over and meals. over again. Yeah. Well, Rachel, I'm, if you want to be on the show, you're welcome. Like, like, like Chopped, for instance. And oh. then they did the next version of it where Alton Brown was the, the host again, and it was the same fucking show. They just did it different elimination style. And it's like, you know what? People don't want to watch teenagers, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds. Like, who want, nobody wants to watch that shit anymore. No. You know? No, I mean, I you know, there's certain parts of the Food Network that I think were very valuable. Back then, for sure. You know, like the original Iron Chef. I think Iron Chef in general was pretty great. You know, like the, the OG one. And yeah. then the, I remember like watching the OG one once and they put a, like a live octopus in a hot pot and the octopus was just like trying to get the fuck out. <laughs> it's just like. The, the best was the dude at the beginning when he revealed, octopus! <laughs> yeah. Like those shows for sure. Not a cuisine. Cheddar cheese. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. Nick. Those for sure. No, those and I sure. think Alton Brown was good. Um, I think some other ones were obviously good. 
I have I have very much a soft spot for Guy Fieri now <laughs> that I didn't have before. Yeah. Um, you know, like I think that it kind of serves an interesting purpose, but at the end of the day, it's so far removed from what we actually do. You know, and it gives people like a false perception of what we actually do. Oh, 100%. And I can only speak about the Food Network because there's a lot of other reality TV that is so far removed from actually how shit works. Yeah. Um, just because I have a classic car, like classic car shows are so far removed from what actually happens. Is that your Cadillac? Car. Yeah. Nice, man. Um, you know, like no one's turning out a car in five days that's no. totally restored unless no. you're dropping like 150 grand. Like it's just not realistic. So course um just like those kind of things and i and i understand it from other perspectives but from ours like the food network really it helped in a lot of ways but it did cheapen what we do a lot well like i don't hate on alton brown or guy fieri or any of the people that have become food network stars yeah yeah i think hey man they they did their thing for me it's more just Food Network doesn't have the monopoly anymore. Right. Like, there's lots well, the of... Podcast is now on the streets, so yeah. they got to worry about us. I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. You know? We're not censored. Yeah. <laughs> you know who doesn't have a sticker on the chicken pollo truck? Food Network. <laughs> well, they probably have mugs, though, but we got mugs. We got mugs. We got mugs. You know. Three. So that, that, that for me, is, like, being aware that there's so many um, mediums... To get yeah. your content out there, to get uh, people to to hear your story, to you know see you in action, um, I think that that that's where uh, the shift has gone. Like it's shifted towards that. Yeah, and I, you- I, it's an interesting thing that you mentioned the story because like people ask me all the time, like why did we even start this fucking thing? Yeah, this podcast. <laughs> but I think that media has done such a poor job of talking about stories of yeah. people that really matter because the I don't know if it's I don't think it's the attention span because when when stories are good people read them sure. um but I think they don't focus on like a lot of the bones of what makes people special you know like your story how you came up and I know that a lot of that has been documented but other people that maybe not not may not be as fortunate as you are to have that story be told and something, a part of their story that they want to talk about and so on yeah. and so forth. And I think that's incredibly like, it's just kind of lost. You know what I mean? Because all they're worried about is like, you know, the top 10 pies in the city and they're yeah. just going to give another nine pies with your pie. Yeah. And it's almost like, yeah, Derek's going to be on that list. It's just, it's not, there's nothing genuine about that. You know what I mean? Yeah. But and it, albeit it's, it's good to be on a list of any kind because it drives tourists to your space. Yeah. But at the end of the day, there's not much. Um, I want to learn more about you and why you cook that pie. Well, they bake the pie. They essentially they don't take any chances anymore. They do what they know works, which I can understand. You know, from a I can understand from a standpoint of. Uh, uh, the mentality, because it's similar mentality in a restaurant, like cook your hits, you know, make make your best dishes. I don't, I don't, I can't agree with that. Well, wait, in what part though? In wh- I mean, because for me, like the bones of, for example, I'll just take the flagship, Ariette, right? Yeah. It's been there for five years. The bones of the menu are the same. Sure. But that menu changes drastically all the time. Y- well, but 
I guess what I'm the point I'm trying to make is like I don't disagree with you on that. The point the I, I'm just making a different point and I didn't explain it correctly. They're uh, a big conglomerate. The Food Network's right. a big conglomerate, right? You could compare them to say a Starbucks or you know sure. one of those types of things. So they're not going to do anything different than the stuff that they're already doing, and that really limits all the stories. You know, all that other stuff. They're going to repeat the same show sure. over and over and over again or some same version. Like like magazines, for instance, right? Remember, you remember Maxim Magazine? Or you, I'm yeah, sure yeah, you've yeah, heard of, of Maxim Magazine. Or, or Men's Health. Men's Health is a better example. Know that one, too? Okay. Six-pack abs. Then the next one, the next month would be five exercise to make abs. Then the next magazine would be, oh, the the best new uh, core workouts for abs. And it's like they're literally telling you the same shit over and over and over again, just rewording it. And, and that's the entirety of that magazine. Um, uh, so with the Food Network, they're doing the same thing, essentially. Whereas there's no restrictions on YouTube, TikTok, you know, uh, Netflix has – uh, their own different formula, you know, and all these, right. you know, and all these new, more exciting, easily, ex- uh, easily accessible platforms uh, are really taking center stage, in my mm-hmm. opinion, especially during this pandemic. Yeah, well, I feel uh, I think the only reason people listen to this crazy shit that we record every week is that during the pandemic, we stayed consistently doing it. And with guests, without guests, it didn't matter. Like, we still talked about things. And, you know, real content, new content, and what I mean by real is, like, genuine content is very important. And we're not, like, no one is controlling us. Like, we need to we need to support a certain party of no. people. Yeah. Um, we need to just do what we do. You know, and I think that's that freedom is in essence, very important, but it, it can also go the, the other way and be bad but and influence for the bad, but it's there's a lot of good in that too. And yeah. it's like there's good and bad in everything. And I think, um, you know, the way content is going now and the way that, like, uh, people view content and how they consume content and all that stuff and how they consume their experience too. Like everything uh, when it comes to food consumption is also experience-based also. Sure. You you want them to have a good experience on top of, uh, albeit the food be a part of that and the beverage a part of that, the experience also needs to be a part of that too. Music, the lighting, the vibe, the thing, like all those things fucking matter, man. So, and it's just, you know, because there's so many fucking options now. Yeah. So many options. So, that's, I think that's all I got, man. This, that was, that, this has been like, like, Four different flurries of intensity, and I love it. But I, I, I will say, in case this does anything in your head, you haven't really talked any football while I, the mics were rolling. Yeah, no, I know. So for I mean, whatever that's worth. I don't. I, are you a big football fan? Well, I have interesting views on sports. Oh, this sounds I, good for oh, Patreon. Man, no, well, no, but this sounds good in general. Okay. Go on. Yeah, Patreon um, is more like other questions. Uh, I played sports growing up. I played football and baseball in high school. I played football in college. What college? I went to Grambling State University in Louisiana. And uh, I didn't play for very long because I kind of got to a point where, A, I didn't like going to school or class, I should say, um, because I just found it to be incredibly boring. And, B, 
you know, you realize, like, what are you going to, you know, is this a career? You know, and if it's not a career, it's like, why continue to prolong, you know, be, be in, you know, prolonging something that you know is not what your, uh, you know, what your career desire is or path or whatever you want to call it. Um, sports, to me, have gotten out of control. Um, and I say that from a standpoint of, you know, they're advertising what these guys are making, right. um, which, which I think is kind of funny in comparison to what the owners of the team are making in, in the sense of it's like you, they advertise what the athletes are making and it's such a disgusting amount of money for what it is they do for a living. I mean, it's entertainment value, right? Yeah, I mean, they, they play a kid's game. Yeah. And so I'm not putting it on the players because the owners. And I don't mean that in a bad way. No, I I know. I get what you're saying. But so you can't find competent people that know basic fucking math and know how to work a job and have work ethic and, you know, have been taught some sense of responsibility. Right. But some guy shooting a basketball can make 50 million dollars a year. So I think people's priorities are fucked up in the sense of. I would rather have my children be educated properly or have all the children in this country be educated properly. I think that, uh, (laughs) you know, I think that we've set such a standard that being an entertainer is something of high value. And they don't explain to you that um, the percentage of people that will become high paid entertainers like that is such a minute fucking percentage that it's almost non-existent single digit percentage less like one two fractional three. it's yeah. a fractional percentage right mm-hmm. and um you know I, I i it's hard to support that and to buy into that and want to give them money when uh you know you got kids that that can't get an education properly, you know, that can't get a proper education. You got kids that don't even have uh, clean drinking water or food to eat in this country uh, or or access to health care. And I'm not one of these like, oh, we're like one of these like liberals, like, oh, we need everything for free. Like, no, I don't believe in that bullshit either. Like, I'm very much into capitalism and and working hard and, and, you know, not not living off the government, like doing things for your, you know, for yourself and making your own way. But, um I think that the entertainment business as a whole has contribute, contributed to giving people such a false sense of reality mm-hmm. and and they idolize shit that shouldn't matter, in my opinion. And the people who are running businesses, the, the people who are running businesses and just our daily function, our stuff that makes our lives function on a daily basis – continue to suffer because you're getting people who are less and less educated or healthy or uh, you know whatever other whatever other you know terms you want to throw in there so i like the game like i think you know sports are valuable in the sense of teaching kids teamwork Mm -hmm. and and health you know exercise and maintaining a healthy lifestyle but i think that uh that from a people's priority standpoint it's like yo man i'm more concerned about the fact that it's hard to find people that want to work and are and are intelligent that you know they're not going to fuck things up than it is 
as to who, going to the Super Bowl or or caring about who won the Super Bowl or what basketball team is playing or you know who the Dolphins are matched up against this weekend. So um, I don't dislike sports per se. I just I don't support. I would I, I put my energies and efforts into supporting other things like growing my business so I can give people jobs and teach people skills and and affect their lives in in a, in a more positive way if that makes sense. All of that does make sense. I have uh counterpoints. So and you touched on it. So I think I played sports for a long time. Yeah. I think that um sports were very important to my fundamental understanding of work ethic, leadership, uh teamwork, and you mentioned that um I think that they were important to understanding coaching uh, also. I think sure. it was, like, super pivotal to that. Um, I think, like, sports were big for me when I was a kid. It saved a lot of, like, my childhood when I could have gone the other way. I agree with all of that. Yeah. You know, like, um, you know, I had two options. I could either be, you know, more of a degenerate when I was a kid or I could have you know, gone to practice every day and I went to practice every day. So, and then equally, so, um, I played college ball and then I also had to make a decision too, which was a probably one of the more grown up decisions I've made in my life, which is like when I finished playing ball, my senior year, I was, you know, I'm the same height I've been since I was fucking 16. Um, Oh, Emma, you're an angel. No, it's okay. You're totally fine. Um, and I wasn't very fast. I was, you know, I was just a hard worker or whatever. I watched a lot of films, so I was relatively decent. And I had an opportunity to go to some arena team tryouts, and I decided, no. Like, it's time to just hang it up. There's no future in this. I had already started working in restaurants a year and a half prior, two years prior. Where'd you go to college? Uh, Averett University in Virginia. Okay. And... Um, I was like, I love this, and I still love football. I think it was, like, one of the top three things, like, that I've loved in my life. And um, I think it was just like, I'm just going to hang it up. We walked away as conference champs. It was nice. It was very, uh, even though we didn't go to the playoffs, Division Three is weird. But um, so it was a nice way to just leave for me. Sure. And I made. I think that was a good, a good representation of making a grown-up decision. That was probably the earliest grown-up decision I ever made. And then I think in my older life, I would agree with you that, like, I I didn't come to a place that I didn't like it, but I came to a place that I just didn't appreciate it as much because there was so much more on the line for other things. You know, like, I worked Sunday brunch every Sunday of Ariette for, like, three years to build that business that yeah. came from zero Saturday and Sunday. So I wasn't worried about who the Hurricanes were playing. I was I've and it, the same thing with the Dolphins. And I am a through and through Canes and Dolphins fan. Like those are my squads. I love them to death. But there's a lot more on the line. For yeah. Me. So I wasn't that concerned. So like in my friend group chats is like, oh, did you see this? I'm like, I didn't see that, and I don't know what that means. I don't know what really what happened. I'm sure they suck. It's fine. I'm okay. Yeah. You know and. Furthermore, I think I, I understand the viewpoint of like, you know, we put so much emphasis in the things that don't matter. But it's and I always relate it to like the the gladiators, right? 
It's like you entertain the crowd. Yeah. You know, and when the crowd is entertained and not paying attention, so many things happen. And it's very, I mean, it's very similar to that. You know, and I love, I love sports. They, they mean a lot to me, what they taught me and so on and so forth. But I get the aspect of like, you know, we know what the players make, but how much do the owners make? Well, that's why I say I'm not blaming the players. I say the owners are also in on it too because they're. If that's what the players are making, I can't even imagine what the owners are making. The disgusting Absolutely, amounts 150%. of money. Absolutely, 150. percent You know, and and I and I'm and I say disgusting amounts of money, not because I wouldn't appreciate having that amount of money. Yeah, I just say sure. it from a standpoint of for like what they're actually providing. Right. You know what I mean? It's like you're you're. Yeah, but you, you know, know you you got to look at it the other side too. They look at it like, I I lived in Middle America for a long time. Yeah, five years, and I was like, you know, like that's like they that there's sports there, like it is fucking, you know, Miami. We have everything under the sun to do. Yeah, we that's can all they have up there. We can go to the beach. We can get on a boat. We can go to a museum. We can go to like we could just do what the fuck. We can go whatever. Yeah, Miami is an endless lot of vice opportunities mm-hmm. at all times, but you know, in Middle America, they got their team. They got their things. Like, I I went to visit a good friend of mine uh mitch that he was playing for wittenberg it was a college in ohio and this is a division three school they were always top 25 they were very good whatever but this is division three school yeah this isn't even ohio state and that city was a wittenberg city like that's all they cared about their yeah. games were sold out you know and it was like it was wild to me this is division three football no one even knows who's it no. common College football fans do not even know what Division Three football is. Yeah. So the fact to see that, and it's, you know, I understand the escape aspect. I understand the, you know, turning your brain off for three hours or whatever it is. It's when it becomes overwhelming and that's all that matters is when it's a problem, mm-hmm. you know. So I get all, I get all the viewpoints and I, I agree with you and I agree with the other side too because even for me, I made it a point to watch Dolphin games again this year. This is the first time in years that I actually watched Dolphin games. I mean, talking about four years. And it was a good moment for me. Sure. You know what I mean? So, you know, sports is a, it's a loaded bag, I think, Nick. I, I think... Uh, and thank you to our sponsor, <laughs> Drew Estate, for putting on this show. Thank you, the Miami <laughs> Dolphins. <laughs> Relax. They have not I paid a dollar. I would love to get some Garfinkel, you know who you are. Yeah. Give but us all your money. I was going to say, as somebody who hasn't played sports... Since middle school, uh, no, I think there's, I think that there's. Something I'm to be shocked. Said, I think there's something to be said to like so two things, because I I don't, I I think that a lot of what you're talking about, and for those who this is an audio medium, point I'm gesturing vaguely in Derek's direction, uh, I think a lot of that is in how it's being consumed, right? And uh, y- it can be seen as just like a turn your brain off, but I think there's. There's value in having the opportunity to observe, like, people who are at this pinnacle of, you mentioned discipline and work ethic. I mean, it takes those things to get to that level. A hundred percent. And I think that there's value to being there. And then I think there's also on that, you know, that capitalist side. If you're enter- It's one thing to entertain people. It's another thing to entertain a whole fucking country. Yeah. And at that point, it's like, you know, you mentioned earlier in the conversation if somebody came along and said you can make however many millions of pies, well, you're going to expect a certain amount of money to make those pies. Well, okay, I can. If you're going to put all of my effort to work to entertain an entire country of people and millions upon millions of people are going to watch the fruits of this labor I've been putting in, yeah, 
that that has a, a dollar amount attached to it too. Oh, I agree. The part that I the only part I disagree with is is that I'm not distracting them. I'm feeding them. You know what I'm saying? Like sure. I'm not a you know eating a piece of key lime pie is not a three or four hour long distraction. No, you know what I mean? Or like you know you were talking about what it's going to take you five minutes, ten minutes. But it's also I mean, on, on some level it's entertainment, right? Like. Yeah, no, nobody's trying to keep people, uh, you know, above the starvation line with key lime pie. Well, no. I, I mean, no, <clears throat> I mean, I think food is a satiating thing. Like you need, I don't know, but emotional, I mean, I em- emotionally saying. satiating the way that entertainment can be. It's it's a it's a diversion. It's it's a, 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 that's not a knock on it. I think I think no, that I psychologically for any person that has value, and some people may be taking from sports exactly what they take from key lime pie. I mean, I I, I agree with that. I, the only you know the part. The part I like that them I both said, a lot. Yeah, the part that I said at, <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> yeah, at the same time. Um, you know, the only part that that I that I take issue with is is um, uh, the fact that it's like it's people use it as an escape from right. reality. Yeah, and it's like the reality is is that look, man. You still have to do all these other things in your life that are contribute that totally. contribute to you having well, a good look, life. I, I don't but also, how, I, stre- stress eating is a thing. Yeah, man. I, I fucking stress eat a cookie every four days. I don't look how least. I look because I take a healthy approach to pie. So, <laughs> well, I think you can do. The Nick, same you're thing. a beautiful man. You can, okay, you can do the same thing with sports. So my point is just that there's. I think that what you're. I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I yeah. just. I I you know, and I'm paying like armchair fucking sociologist or something. I diagnose it as a is cultural problem more than with than as a problem problem with the product. Well, I guess the I guess the ultimate point that I I'm trying to make is is that too many people think that 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 sports figure or entertainer that their life is better than than their own. Yeah. Well, and that's it, what it, I take issue with. Well, it's it's also like the to go a totally different route, but the same is like. Uh, the way that supermodel looks is the way that everyone should look. Yeah, that's horseshit. Right, it's yeah. hor- it's horseshit. Right? Yeah, thicker is better. So, well, I mean, I'm, yeah. As as all three of us sit around this table, yeah. <laughs> I, I I think I you know the, I, I'll give you this example, right? Like I've heard people have conversations like, "What celebrity would be your hall pass?" Right? Like what what celebrity would do you like that would be your hall pass or hall pass for what? Oh, like to. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. And and you hear like people people's answers and whatever, and or you see these people have infatuations with you know some actor or singer or whatever it is, right? And mainly this this you know this describes uh, actors, I guess. It's like you fell in love with a fictional television character. You fell in love with somebody that plays a fictional character in a movie. So deep. I love this. Even the even the sports figures are you could argue are fictional characters because that's not who they really are as human beings. Like they could be complete pieces of shit. Yeah, I know, it's true. And that's why the the ones that come out and say that are the ones victimized the most, which is like the Charles Barkleys of the world, the Dennis Rodmans of the world. Like yeah. this is who we really are. I don't give a fuck if you don't like it. Yeah. And I don't like, you know, I'm not your role model, which I love. Like, I I don't like Charles Barkley in this character that he is now, but, like, when he was playing and the same thing with Rodman, like, I love that shit. Like, yeah. That is a, and Jordan, too. Like, Jordan was, he was an intense motherfucker, and that's just, 
that's who he was, you know what I'm saying? But not all, not always, especially now, because back then sports were very different. Way different. Now, like everything in the social media world, because it clouds oh, the brain so much, um, it, you know, things have changed so much. And I feel like we're living in a world right now that people aren't totally sure um, what's what's up or down like i want to be like that guy but you don't really know that guy yeah. i want to be like that person i don't really know that person i really did my hall pass is i want to sleep with this person what if this person sucks in bed yeah what do they suck as a human well they're fucking gonorrhea okay <laughs> <laughs> also that yeah. i mean fuck you know i'm just saying <laughs> if, if no one really knows uh you don't really know and, and i think that's it's another reason why this whole weird fucking podcast happened to begin with is because the art of conversation is completely done. Yeah. yeah it's uh, the art of con- uh, having a conversation disagreeing. Like, Nick and I disagree like 70% of our conversations, right? Give or take. So, but we're still friends. Of course. Because it's the conversation that has totally just been, it is just gone because everything is now emojis, which I use often, but I'm not saying they're a good way to use, yeah. you know, to communicate. It's an onion. It's an onion, right? Everything is a fucking onion. So, I it, it's it's weird, man. It's yeah. weird. It's the evolution of like the way the world is going, and that's why I'm, I love to stay so old school. Yeah, you know, um, with our food and our approach, and like I don't care what the rest of the world is doing. I don't care what the rest of Miami doing is doing. I don't care about any of that stuff. These are the fundamentals of what made dining special. So that's what we stick with. Yeah, you no, know, hundred percent. I'm, I'm going to throw in, uh, unless you had somewhere else you want nah, to go. Nah, throw it in. I'm going to throw in a last question just to give Derek the last word before we move on to wind down Patreon things. Thank you to our sponsor, Drew Estate. <laughs> they didn't pay for this many thank yous. That's true. <laughs> You're right. Uh, I no, stricken that. We, we've stricken that from the podcast. I, I think we've covered a lot of ground, and, and I think more so than a lot of other episodes, this is all kind of like in some vague way come back to the same thing of like what you want to contribute to the world and you know what you want it to look like whether it's in business or whether it's you know culturally you know through the role of sports or whatever so i i guess i'm left curious for you when you're when you when you hang up your you know professional apron for the last time because i imagine you'll be making pie as well after that sure what would you want to be able to say like i did this this is this was the mark I left, or the w- my contribution, whether it's to Miami or to pie or to cake or whatever. Sure. How, how do you see that? Like, what are you working toward in the grand scheme? Um, setting a positive example, you know, for people to look up to, for people to be like, you know, wow, that guy, you know, that guy really did it. You know, he went after it. Um, you know, there's things about me that people don't know from a standpoint of. I mean, like, for instance, I've been a type 1 diabetic since I was 13 years old. And I make pies and cakes for a living. And ice cream and flans and cookies. And, That's wild. Yeah. Um, and I'm well managed. You know what I mean? I do eat dessert. I eat it in, in moderation. Um, I exercise frequently. Um, so, so I say that... You know, from a, I really was a fireman. You know, I served the city of Miami for ten years, which I think is a significant amount of time. You know, decade is decade uh, is a long time. Yeah. Um, so I served the community, um, 
and and I want you know I want to say I want people to be like I want people to say that I enhance their lives through growing this business and providing opportunities to work and make money and I provide health care to the employees uh, eventually you know I want to start offering uh, you know, re- retirement benefits like a 401k program or some other type of program for people to put their put their money, you know, put their money into. Um, I tell all my employees that work at the shops, I go, look, I don't think your dream in life is to stand behind this counter and say, hi, welcome to Fireman Derek's. You know, how may I help you and serve them pie and coffee? But I go, if you but I go, you're going to if you use this job for the right reasons, You'll get something out of it. You know, you'll learn teamwork. You'll learn responsibility, showing up on time, being in uniform, all that stuff. You will learn how to communicate with your customers. And you will be able to put, you know, and and you'll make some money. And you'll be able to put it on your resume. And people around town will be like, you worked at Fireman Derrick's? I love that place. I'm going to call over there and see, uh, you know, and see... um, what they say about you, you know what I mean? And, and the idea is to be able to speak highly of that person that's going for that next position in life. I say it to my managers too. I'm like, look, you guys want to be our manager. You know, you want to, you want to grow with the company. You're in a management position. You're in a prime spot. But if you don't want to be the manager here or, you know, stick around, you just want to manage for a couple years and go somewhere else, just do a good job. You know what I'm saying? Do a good job. Learn your skills. Like I'm paying you to learn and grow, you know, and grow your own self. Um, so, like, things like that, you know, and, and, and also to... Sorry, we're going to take a Zamboni break here. Oh, the Zamboni! And here's yeah. the traditional late-night Drew Estate Zamboni uh, for the Coconut Grove Streets. Thank you, Drew Estate, for all that you've contributed today. This might be the first time we don't cut the Zamboni out, just for that, <laughs> yeah. that plug. The Zamboni will come back around, so let's give it a second. So, um, no, really, the Zamboni will come back around like no, that. Yeah, in a, this in a is moment. like this is traditional now. He's yeah. coming. Yeah. I can see him. Turns the corner. He keep. He's keeping the streets clean. Uh, look at that. Did it? Look at him go. I oh, wish he had man. a fucking horn, right? We should get him a Bangkok podcast horn. We should get him a sticker and slap it on there. Oh man, I have stickers. I was uh, going through them earlier. How many stickers do you have? Oh, good amount. Why? What's up? What, are you talking about Panko Podcast? Too? Yeah. Really? How many have? Well, you know. Give them away, man. Nice. I give them away when the time's right. right. Sorry, yeah. you were saying. No, so, um, you know, to provide opportunity for people, to teach people, you know, for them to learn uh, from me, from, uh, from them, you know, from themselves by, by doing, you know, in the, in the company. Um, I mean... I, I bring in kids from uh, pastry school or, you know, these culinary schools, and <laughs> it's a fucking joke. In the sense <laughs> I love that. In it the is sense, a fucking joke. Yeah. In the fucking culinary schools are dumb. What they, ta- what they teach them. No, yeah, it's true. They won't be sponsoring this podcast. That's yeah, for fucking advertising. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I actually teach, uh, teach them how to bake. Or, or produce, you know, whatever. I mean, yeah, bake because that's... What do you mean? You don't just have uh, 30 people watch one person bake a pie and say, hey, you guys should know how to bake a fucking pie now. Yeah. Uh, this is where we do our wind down. We're going to start with our parting recommendations. Oh, Everybody's going to recommend a thing that uh, they think that you should eat, read, watch, uh, visit, whatever it might be. Man. Derek, you got anything? Sure. 
Yeah, go no, you go first. You, I got as, many, I as many as you want to do. Um, if you're into cast iron pans, I recommend uh, Smithies. Okay. They're, uh, Are you couple. sponsored by them? No, no. Oh, right. You but should I'm, be. Though. I'm working on it. Yeah, I'm get there. Nespresso the and Simi. Um, not if we take their money first. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Smithies, that's advertising. <laughs> I think, um, I love using the pan. I mean, I have one in my house. And uh, it's a great cast iron heirloom to add to your collection if you're love that. into cooking. Um, I also recommend, let's see, you said... Reading anything at all, yeah, ah, it could be whatever, man. Anything at all. Something you ate. If you listen to, if you like books, I would read um, this book called Atomic Habits, and it talks about how the making small, minute changes every day eventually leads to large shifts. You know, like big shifts in what you're doing. Um, like for instance, your goal should be to become a marathon runner, not run a marathon. You know, or like most people, they just run one marathon and then that's it. And the goal should be to be a marathon runner and, you know, have that kind of discipline and endurance and, and all that type of stuff and how that uh, translates throughout your life and all the things you, you do. Um, Restaurant-wise, I mean... I have to say, come to Ariette. Uh, oh, man. You're the you nicest know, come, guy ever. Come, come to Ariette. I mean, I can't say that. I can't say any other restaurants without at least saying that one first, right? Yeah, no, you can say other ones. It's um, okay. And now for the restaurants he really means. <laughs> 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 um, I actually just, I, I, I'm living up in the Upper East Side area, so I'm really exploring. Like, oh, so you don't live down here anymore? No, I oh. moved from the Grove. Um, so I'm I'm exploring a lot of those restaurants, and there's some cool places like the Citadel to go oh. to is, is a cool spot. Great burger. Yeah, um, and also, have you been to Buena Vista? They have that restaurant Vista. No, I haven't been there. So they got this cool little complex over there. It's yeah, I've been to the complex, but not the restaurant. Yeah, yeah. so the complex is beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. It, it reminds me of Tulum, Mexico. They have that kind of vibe going I've on there. Never been there. That's T- nice, man. Tulum's gorgeous. I've yeah. been. Yeah. Um, I've been. Yeah. Yeah. You got to go to Tulum. I know a lot of people are going there. Like it's hot to go there right I now. I want to go where no one's going. I want to go where there's like zero humans. Yeah, um, Antarctica. <laughs> I, I, I went to Iceland a few years ago. There was very little humans there. Yeah. I liked it. <laughs> um, so yeah, those you know that's some cool spots. There's uh, it's entertainment wise. I'm I mean, not sports. Not sports. <laughs> I can't say that I've watched any good movies lately because the movies that they are coming out with just are not up to par in my right. opinion. I um, go I always go back back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean I'd say I'd say, you know, those are my recommendations. Good stuff. Yeah. Michael Beltran, you got now, any recommendations? The unprepared Mike Beltran's recommendations. So um Anyone who knows me knows that I love, like, old blues, jazz, race music, like, the whole thing. And I don't know why uh, I wanted to – I was in between shifts the other day, and I just took, like, an hour in my office, and I wanted to, like – I locked the door so people thought I wasn't there. 
and uh, I watched a little bit of the uh, movie based on Miles Davis, Miles Ahead. Mm-hmm. Big Miles Davis fan. Um, it's a very interesting movie. I didn't finish the movie then. I finished it later. Um, and, you know, like all those incredible jazz artists, they're all like super loaded. You know, there's a lot behind the creation and the, a lot of drugs involved and the things or whatever. But um, something that was definitely... It's amazing. Um, something that was big to me was how much he didn't love Blue and Green. Are you familiar with that, that album, Blue and Green? Uh, I'm not, but I'm familiar with Miles Davis. Well, if, if you heard Blue and Green, you'd be like, oh, yeah, no, I know it. You know, like it's it's like probably the most monumental album that he ever did. The people that were on that album too were ended up being legends as well. So, and how much he just believed it was just like so like fundamental sound jazz, and it wasn't like really um, who he was because he then developed into a different type of artist. And you know, like that, the just the track Blue and Green itself, it is absolutely perfect musically it's like amazing so i would recommend watching that movie and i would recommend listening to that album and if you don't have a record player you should probably invest into one and that should probably be the first album that you buy um along with sketches of spain um but i would recommend those two things over a lot of things very good I have four recommendations. Forget about it. I'm out of here. Two of them are, were sparked by things you just said. Oh, wow. One of them is, uh, this is not new, but if you haven't seen Walk Hard. Oh, yeah, it's good. The movie Walk Hard, which is a parody of the kind of story you're talking about, definitely check out Walk Hard. It's like Walk the Line and Ray and other things all rolled into one. Uh, that's John C. Riley, right? John C. Riley, yeah. Uh... Then, this is quasi-shameless plug, uh, the last episode of Step Into the Sandbox, uh, Unseen Creatures Brewing's Marco Leita Vidal, and I thought of this because some portion of the podcast is about how he takes inspiration in his creative process from uh, Miles Davis. So, there's that. Then the two ones that I was going to come in with were, one, a YouTube channel called Donut Media, D-O-N-U-T, Media. Nice. It's all car stuff, uh, and I'm not a car guy. If you want car information in a way that is like deep but digestible to somebody who doesn't know what the, would otherwise like all this stuff would go over your head, super into everything they do there. And the last thing, this is one that I just recommended to Mike personally the last time we uh, got together, is uh, go down. Whatever music uh, app you use, the rabbit hole of Alex Cuba. Oh, man. That was such an intense night. The night we were supposed to re- record a pod, and then me and Nick ended up talking for hours up until 2 in the morning. And without microphones. Without microphones and listening to Alex Cuba. Well, no, th- in that case, I was just in your imagination because you listened on your own to Alex Cuba. What yeah, genre? that was still much, much later. But yeah. <laughs> what genre of music is Alex Cuba? He is, he is a, he's, he's, I believe he's in Canada now, but he's like a Cuban singer-songwriter. Gotcha. So singer-songwriter genre, but very Latin. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm not sh- I'm sure that's a stage name. Speaking of stage names, uh, I'm going to recommend another thing. 
Uh, Nick's taking over the stage. Because sandwich. his music is great, and I also he has my favorite stage name of all time, Fantastic Negrito. <laughs> Fantastic <laughs> Negrito is awesome, and if you want to start with his NPR Tiny Desk concert, that guy's the man. Uh, very interesting story also. Like All of his music is influenced by the fact that he was in a terrible car accident that limits what he can do with his fingers on his guitar. So uh, all of the guitar stuff is like this sort of, it, it's, it sounds very intense and until you realize like, oh shit, he's playing this way because he's gone that far in figuring out what to do with a hand where his fingers could only move so much. Uh, but yeah, Fantastic Negrito, also a great stage name. That's, so. That is a perfect place to end. Shameless plugs. Derek, tell people where they can find your stuff. Yeah. All, online or whatever. Goldbelly. Nespresso. Yeah, goldbelly.com. <laughs> yeah. Nespresso. Um, like Derek's on the Nespresso commercial. Uh, I'm excited. I'm going to go home and watch it. I haven't seen it. That's Whoa. fucking, it's fucking amazing. They like, didn't that's, even tell me it was I, Whenever I see any, like, I remember when Caesar did, Caesar from Fukia did uh, Sakapa commercials. I was like, Caesar in the Sakapa commercials. This is amazing. Yeah. This is so dope. And, like, you know, they, you're talking about, like, big money production, yeah. big money dollars behind editing and so on and so forth. So, you know, we're all good, but they make us look real good. And it's like, that's dope. It's, it was cool, man. Yeah. It was cool. Yeah. I'm going to go check it out. I'll um, send you the link. All right. I got it. I appreciate <laughs> it. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah. You can, you know, come to the stores, obviously. And goldbelly.com, Uber Eats, Postmates. If you're a restaurant in need of desserts, hit up Chef's Warehouse. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, Melly, Melissa Hidalgo. Yeah. That's my rep, and I would recommend her through and through. Yeah. Um, also Justin's wife. But also good. Okay. Is he still doing, secret, but. Are you guys still doing his pizzas on the weekends? Boy, he's my partner. He's your partner. Here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, cool. for now. Yeah. Shameless plug things. Pig All Inc. the things. Pig man. Inc. and Area Miami. And I'm Be on the lookout for Pig Inc. Apparel on Instagram right. and the new relaunch of our merchandise line because I needed something else to do. <laughs> so, so on. Uh, so, in, uh, in response to that, do you think food events are going to come back? Like, like you did. Pig Inc. is an actual food event. Well, no, P- Pig Inc. is. Is a merchandise brand. What was the food event? That was it was pig something. No, that was had nothing to do with me. They just stole all my things. Gotcha. But yeah, they they that was a that was another thing. Yeah, it wasn't my my event. I know we're at the end of the the show That's here, fine. but but no, it's so fine. I we usually question, go on tangents here. I use. I, I guess the it. question is: Is do you feel that food events prior to COVID will come back the way? that they were before better uh people or people will not be you know will not be so interested in participating in those types of things so i think that the world is the zamboni coming back sounds zamboni-ish right i don't know i don't know if the zamboni is coming back no i don't think so shameless plug for the zamboni guy yeah Um, (laughs) zamboni.com so i don't i don't know so my view uh, on food events, and you can uh, refer to our podcast with Larry Carino on my very interesting and emotional view on food events. I thought that they were pretty shitty to begin with yeah. beforehand. I don't know if you feel like they added any kind of respectability to your brand. I don't think that they added respectability to our brand. Sure. 
and only because they don't well, at least the ones that they put on Miami i.e. the South Beach Food and Wine Festival um, I don't think that they put enough emphasis on the actual Miami brands no it's a money grab for the people putting on the event amen to that yeah. so um, do I think that they'll come back I do think that they'll come back because there is a pining for people wanting to go out and do things of course so I do believe that they will come back in what capacity they come back I'm not totally sure. Like, I talk shit about the South Beach Food and Wine Festival, and I will continue to profusely. Um, but Zach Stern, another former guest on the podcast and very dear friend, conned me into doing one, an event with him, because uh, uh, he's a complete jerk, but I love him to death. And, you know, I only agreed to do it because it was him. But you know, I do think that they'll come back. Yeah. You know, the capacity and to the success in which they come back, I'm not totally sure. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, we're, we're not working. We, we've, gone over, we've gone over this several times. We're not working for our own benefit or financial gain. We're working for theirs. In the food events. Right. Correct. Correct. And because I don't think that it's the same thing as like, so we, employ, we both employ uh, BCPR to mm-hmm. be our representation, right? I believe that there's a Larry certain... Larry bribed me. Larry bribed you? Yeah. I believe that. Yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a sneaky character, that guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I I believe that there's a certain risk-reward that you can have a communication to the reward. You know, like, you can communicate with their company as, like, how am I getting rewarded for this? And you hopefully will see a return on that. When it comes to the food events, it's like, oh, you know, we're doing this event, blah, blah. You know, we'd love for you to be a part of it, but I don't really see a reward at the end of that. I see a lot of risk, which is money being spent and not being covered. Um, So the reward part is like, yeah, our name is on a banner. I don't fucking know if that means people are coming to my restaurant or not. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. Amen to that. I I like going only to eat the food. If If the other participants. But is the food actually really good? I mean, you're getting a fucking sample size of something that someone thought was the most efficient, consistent thing that they could do at an event that there's a shitty heating element for you to eat. Oh, I I agree that it's not ideal for those participating restaurants to be right. able to serve their best dish. Right, right. Um, and there's also a cost factor associated. They want to do the thing that's going to cost them the least. Well, correct. Um, but... Yeah, I don't participate in a lot of them, and the only reason that I would participate in any of them is if it's somebody who has done things for me that have helped me, and I'm helping them by being there. Um, and and even then, I'll only participate if I'm associating my brand with other brands that I respect. One hundred and fifty percent. Yeah, I love. I, I'm gonna. I want to talk about how Zach conned me into this. Have I talked about this before? Meaning you want to do that here? Yeah, I do. I want to Okay, do no, that. we haven't talked about that. This is news to me. So Zach texted me one day. and uh, This is recent? Yeah, this was like, I don't know, three weeks ago maybe. Okay. And I was in my office, and I'm just like, I'm doing a bunch of work or whatever. He's like, hey, man, you know, like, uh, uh, let's do this dinner and blah, blah. And he's goes, go, going on about this dinner. And he's like, <clears throat> who do you want to do dinner with? Let's, you know, pick who we're going to do dinner with. Let's do our thing and do whatever we want, blah, blah. And he's just going on on this tangent. I'm like, yeah, man, let's do a dinner. I like, I love cooking with people that I, you know, I enjoy their food. I respect their food. I respect them, so on and so forth. 
I'm like, cool, yeah, let's pick a third, and, and we're all through this. And I'm so I finally agreed to do the dinner with him, and I'm like, yeah, all right, cool. And uh, we're going through the rabbit hole of like, who, you know, maybe we should get this person, maybe we get these people, whatever. And uh, but what about their food, and does their food match our food? That's just weird. And okay. So then he goes, there's a catch, dot, 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 dot. And then I did not respond for like half an hour because I was annoyed. Because I didn't know that there was a catch, and I hate the fact that he conned me into the fact that after I agreed, there was a catch. And then he said, I said, okay, so what's the catch? He said, it's for Sobe. And I go, man, you motherfucker, man. Like, you piece of shit. Because I had already agreed to do it, right? I... Don't you dare do the head thing that you do that no one can see now because we're not on YouTube for this episode. The head thing is, uh, I mean, you agreed to do it, but if people were introducing new factors, it invalidates the agreeing to yeah, do it. Yeah, but it was exciting. We haven't, no, people have not cooked together for over a year. This is currently. Yeah. Or you already did this event. No, we're, we're going to do the You're event. You're planning this event. Yeah, I am in no way supporting going to the South Beach Food and Wine Festival. As I say this, you probably shouldn't even go to my event. Uh, but they should pay me for all the product that I'm about to use. Um, yeah, it's going to happen in a few months. And, you know, we picked uh, an amazing partner in Boya Day to do the dinner with. And um, It's by my house. Yeah, Boya Day? I've, eat, I've eaten there. It's amazing. Fire. I think it's so good. Yeah. Uh, they're incredibly talented and great people. And I'm excited to cook with them and with Zach, albeit for a shitty umbrella. They're also and, scheduled to be guests on Pancom Podcast. And they will be on a future episode of Pancom Podcast. That's right. All right. That's my whole Zach Stern thing, and I'm going to leave it alone now. And that is it. If you are a paying <laughs> Patreon person. <laughs> and you, have a mug. Yeah, even if you don't have a mug, even if you're a dollar a month person, what you're paying for is coming right up. Otherwise, what the fuck are you waiting for? Get out of here. Give us your money so you can hear whatever ridiculous questions Mike has Go fuck in this lightning round Nick. Uh, for perhaps jet skier Derek Kaplan. That's it.